Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. Today on Media Roots Radio, we have returning guest, researcher, Gumby for Christ, better known as Gumby, who posts a lot of his research on Twitter. He did some interesting FOIAs on the Fort Detrick, Maryland, U.S. Bioweapons Lab recently, which we're going to go into in a little bit. But more importantly, this is basically a spiritual sequel. Actually, no, I wouldn't call it a spiritual sequel. It's more of a real, like a legit sequel to one of our more popular Media Roots Radio episodes recently where Gumby just broke down and got into the weeds into this whole lab leak, Wuhan biosafety level four lab was COVID man-made debate. We just pulled at every angle of it. We tried to explore every talking point that you've heard about it. We also tried to break down a lot of the anti-China propaganda that seems to be artificially ramping up. It doesn't even really matter how you land on China, whether you you know think China's evil or not. I mean, I personally think that's a ridiculous view to hold, but it's pretty obvious if you you know if you've just been paying attention to things that there's definitely sort of an artificial ramp up climate that's building that seems to be going against China, just in our media landscape, political landscape. So we're going to talk about where that's gone as well, but. We had last had this discussion pretty much right after, I think it was right after the Capitol riots. I don't know, maybe January 10th or something, Gumby. I don't, I don't remember exactly when, but I'll just, let's just welcome you to the program already since I'm, <laughs> since I'm already mentioning your name. Uh, so welcome to Media Roots, Gumby. So how have you been? What's, what's been on your mind, you know, since you were last on the program, besides the main topic that we're going to cover today, which is the, you know, the lab leak theory? What's been going on with you? Uh, sure. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to be back, Robbie. Um, not. Uh, I don't know what's been on my mind <laughs> exactly. I mean, certainly COVID. Um, uh, it's been pretty interesting to see how that's developed, and we'll obviously uh, talk about that. Um, just you know, um, I don't know. Just like today, I saw uh, Matt Taibbi was uh, talking about like. Uh, he's really got gotten into the cancel culture thing, and he was using a North Korean defector who's known for telling extremely false stories, <laughs> and using her because she had some anecdote about how she brought up that she liked Jane Austen when she went to Columbia <laughs> University, and they told her that's colonialist and you can't read that or something. And it's like it it is really fascinating to see how some of these people that I, you know, I used to read Matt Taibbi a lot, um, especially back in, you know, the Goldman Sachs days when he was writing about that stuff. And he, yeah, I would not say he's a guy who's uh, covered himself in glory over the past few (laughs) years for me. Um, Oh man, it's uh, uh, just commenting on that really quickly. I was just, uh, having a discussion with Whitney Webb and, and his name came up in it oh, because yeah. we were talking about this whole concept of the militarization of space and how, you know, PNACs, uh rebuilding America's defenses is one of the mo- more prescient and elaborate documents predicting, well, not just predicting, but basically laying out what militarization of space should look like and how to achieve yeah. it. 
And Matt Taibbi was one of the main voices on the left, basically mocking people, you know, 9-11 truthers mainly, but mocking really anybody who thought that PNAC's rebuilding America's defenses was a big deal. You know, he even said that the new Pearl Harbor quote was taken out of context. But for someone who's, you know, so obsessed with cancel culture right now, it's just, it's just sort of strange that, you know, he could write a chapter in his book about how PNAC's on a big deal and how the left is overly focused on it, yet completely missed that. I mean, while, you know, the militarization of space is happening, it's just... I, I, I mean, I, I would call it almost like journalistic malpractice or something, like to just ignore all these things or be so fixated on cancel culture. But I don't know, man. It's, it's infected I, I don't even know. a lot of minds there. Well, and interestingly, yeah, that, that same document has the section about um, bioterrorism and biowarfare in there, too. Um, I, don't, I don't remember the exact quote, but, you know, just related to what we're, we will be talking sure. about more. Um, but yeah, that, that whole kind of, I don't know, Substack crowd, I guess you could call them now, is really, um, and they're all, they've all been writing about the COVID story too, but just in this like very superficial meta way about, you know, how the media got it wrong and it's similar to the WMD story or whatever, you know, Greenwald, Tracy, him, even Matt Iglesias, I think wrote an article along those lines. Well, let's, yeah, let's just get right into that then, because I think that's a good, you know, point into enter the the larger discussion about this lab leak theory because yeah that is one of the more interesting angles of this let's just say this is a new ramp up of this uh this propaganda so it started early after the pandemic it mostly came from fringe right-wing media uh it came from epoch times OAN, War Room Pandemic with Steve Bannon. It came from Cernovich. It came from Pasobic. It came from the Washington Times via neocon Bill Gertz. It came from The Hill Rising, which, you know, is more, I would say, mostly a right-wing program, even though people say Crystal Ball is the left counterweight. It never really argued against any of the anti-China stuff or the lab leak stuff. And then sort of quasi-alt media was was pushing it. Zero Hedge. Yeah, and then like Republicans like Tom Cotton. It seemed mostly fringe, but it yeah. was being pushed out after the pandemic, mostly by right-wing media. And then it kind of uh, seemed like there was it hit a valley. Like it peaked, and then it went down. And the Trump admin kind of backed off of pushing that. And, you know, the theory still remained. It was still in the air it still continued to gain momentum. And I think by the time that it had, it started to gain a little more momentum, even though Trump's administration wasn't really pushing it anymore is when you and I talked, it's right when Trump was leaving office. And I think in a weird way, Trump kind of cornered himself because he simultaneously was downplaying, you know, the effects of COVID and the impact it had while people seemed to be trying to push him to, Push this idea that China was responsible for making a bioweapon. Mm-hmm. So if you're making if you're making COVID less scary, then it's hard to sort of push the scariness of it being a bioweapon. It's almost like if if getting COVID's fine and it's not a big deal, then who really cares if you know this bioweapon's nothing? It doesn't really matter. It's like it's just a big inconvenience. And that's sort of more the angle that I think the right leaned into, which is the reparations. Like we want China to pay for this. Right. But I would say when Biden got in, we had a reinjection of this narrative. It seemed as if that State Department report, uh, or I, I don't know, maybe it wasn't the State Department, an Intel internal intelligence report 
got repackaged and sort of laundered again and leaked to the media again, uh, suggesting that people had gone ill at the Wuhan lab with a re- mysterious respiratory virus two months before the first reports of COVID. This information came out again during the Biden administration, the first few months of it. And then, you know, Rand Paul is out there sort of sparring with Fauci, having this big blowout where he's bringing up Eco Health Alliance. I think he even brings up Ralph Barrick's name, maybe even um, during he this did, interchange. Yeah. He brings up gain of function. He brings up actually a lot of the things that you and I talked about on the last episode we did together. So, you know, you and I were sort of surprised that the direction this started to go into was more of a nuanced, seemingly truth-based direction. It didn't seem as much cartoonishly targeted only at the Chinese scientists, like the so-called bat lady. You know, they originally all this stuff was only about, like it only had Chinese names in it, you know. But now we're learning that, as we talked about, there's all these other American scientists involved who are also being funded by the U.S. government. And then right after Rand Paul spars with Fauci, we get this deluge of freedom of information request emails from Fauci uh, showing that he was having extensive conversations about a potential lab origin of COVID-19 via email. So this topic in just a matter of a few days went from being you know, the slowly building one that was gaining credibility kind of still behind the scenes, but it was gaining more credibility to something that went mainstream kind of overnight. Anti-imperialists then sort of caught wind of it finally. This is something I feel like the left and anti-imperialists didn't really touch very much in general over the past year, but they sort of finally did. And their reaction was, this is just a repeat of WMDs in Iraq. You know, this is this is a, a, a repeat of that. And that was sort of my reaction as well about eight months ago when this was originally pushed. So I would say most of the people in the political arena who have been diving into the lab leak theory are also virulently anti-China. It kind of goes hand in hand. So I think that's just why, in general, it's wise to be careful when you read news stories that are just outright blaming China for if this is a lab leak or you know just for COVID-19. But now because it's gone mainstream, uh, it's no longer tinged with this label being a quote-unquote conspiracy theory or it's not even – it can't be put into a box anymore of being this Trumpian or, or, or right-wing thing. And even though you know Trump bragged about being vindicated for it, he, he just said in his last speech he did uh, – he just said straight up the virus originated in a Chinese lab bragging about calling it the China virus because he's claiming he was right because now this theory seems to be mainstream. But, you know, let's unpack what's going on because you just mentioned at the start of this, topping everything off that I just said, that there's this narrative over all of this that big tech, that China, that the U.S. deep state are somehow all colluding together to suppress the lab leak narrative for to so China could save face. I'm not really sure what the ultimate end goal is. You know, we've talked about this sort of being to to spare an international incident from happening, to sort of smooth over something like that. But there, you know, the more the narrative we're seeing now from people like Taibi, Brett Weinstein, Michael Tracy, um, is that this was sort of the populists trying to push for the truth to come out, and the establishment was trying to suppress it. But now it's like finally came out because the truth sort of won out. They couldn't suppress it any longer. The populace was sort of won. 
and I know I've just said a lot, Gumby, but start there. This idea that this is sort of something that's been suppressed, that big tech has been censoring it, which arguably in some regards they have you know, censored things off social media that has said COVID-19 is man-made. Now, maybe they haven't, maybe they're mostly censoring other things like pandemic and, and things like that, but well, they, I mean, oh, go for it. I mean, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think there was a, a fair amount of censorship. I mean, I, I was posting about this on Twitter and Twitter seems to be of the platforms, maybe a little bit more open, you know, they may uh, kind of downgrade things or they will ban people when they really start going off the rails. Like Naomi Wolf recently, I know got banned from Twitter and, you know, that's, I don't, really uh, agree with that i mean i don't agree with what she was saying but she you know she was i feel like she has a a a right to say it on the platform but of course uh, but anyway uh as i understand it i don't use facebook a lot but they were banning apparently any mention that this could come from a lab or at least if a prominent post saying things there was a bioweapon um really early on zero hedge got banned from Twitter or Facebook, one of them, and that was related. They were one of the first. Yeah, and that was related to a lot of the stuff they were writing or reposting about it having come from a lab. Specify really quickly. They what Zero Hedge did though is they pulled up old like science papers, or I think they were the one who got that yeah. old Nature article to go viral. Just explain that really quickly. What why that was important. That was one thing that they did. So they had pulled up the 2015 Nature, um, I think it was in, uh, the Nature article that Ralph Barrick and Xi Jinping Li were co-authors on. Although Ralph Barrick really, if you dig into it, Ralph Barrick had done the majority of the work. And that mm-hmm. was a gain-of-function study where they basically were taking, you know, this gets into the genomics of it, but they were taking a spike protein of one coronavirus and putting it onto... Uh, the backbone of a different virus and making it so that that virus, which had only been in bats, could jump to human beings. They were showing that it could jump into human cells. This is kind of, I mean, this is extremely controversial research if for among people who actually understand what's going on because you've basically just created a bioweapon or at the very least you've created something that can infect human beings. So I know that they had that, but I think the one that really got them got uh, zero hedge heat was that they had reposted this Indian paper that was a preprint, meaning it hadn't gone through peer review or anything yet, showing that there were inserts of HIV. And this is still a controversy. I kind of dismissed it and somebody brought it back up to me and made me reconsider that maybe it is, maybe there's something there. But basically it's like, these very short sequences in the genome that match up to sequences in HIV, uh, the HIV virus, and that this could be a way of, um, you know, basically increasing the virulence or making the virus do something that makes it more infective, something like that. And um, that preprint ended up getting taken down from the site that it was posted to apparently voluntarily although i am sure they got a lot of pressure to take it down and i think that was the basis for uh zero hedge getting uh the the kind of last blow that got them banned from uh from the site as well 
Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, other things like that were the, you know, Francis Boyle gave an interview to Geopolitics and Empire, which is kind of a, I don't know how I describe it, a heterodox geopolitics podcast that I wouldn't really call it left or right, but maybe a little bit more right leaning recently. And, um, you know, basically saying that this was a Chinese bioweapon, offensive bioweapon, and it leaked out of the lab. And pretty much the theory that is mainstream now, um, that got banned from several platforms. Um, you couldn't repost it a lot of places. I think Twitter made it so you couldn't even post a link, if I'm remembering correctly. And now this is a pretty, you know, pretty much, like I said, a mainstream theory. So there was certainly a lot of... Um, suppression of this narrative that was being directed by big tech and also by the media, which is, you know, kind of affiliated with big tech. The, I, I think one, one place where the media cri criticism that people like Tybee, Iglesias, whoever, or do, uh, Tracy are doing that it's on point is that the fact check kind of establishment has, you know, basically, um, totally discredited themselves. I mean, they should have been discredited for a lot of reasons because a lot of these fact check sites are really just wrapping the mainstream narrative and nitpicking and doing really pedantic um, picking up parts of stories and ignoring the, you know, kind of legitimate pieces and debunking the parts that are more ridiculous. And, you know, every fact check site had a big fact check about how COVID did not come from a bio lab, yada, yada, yada. Um, I think the Washington Post recently just um, added a like or they edited an old story that where they had done kind of a fact check or something, basically saying that Tom Cotton's theory that um, that uh, COVID was man made. Yeah, they, they called it a conspiracy theory in yes. the original headline. They changed it to just say fringe theory. Fringe theory. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And right now, as we speak, because that article headline got changed only maybe like a week and a half ago. As we speak now, it's no longer a fringe theory. It's because I just wanted to step in and mention really quickly, part of the reason this has all sort of exploded, and I think really gone mainstream is, is you know, uh, let's just face it, Jon Stewart still has some influence in this yeah. country. And uh, he actually went on late night with Stephen Colbert, Monday, right. June 14th, and said that... He thinks it's really, um, you know, likely or, you know, that we should be talking about this, yeah. uh, that it's that it's leaked from a lab. So I'll play the clip for everybody right here. How do you feel about the science now? Well, so I will say this. I, I and I honestly mean this. I think we owe a great debt of gratitude to science. Science has in many ways helped ease uh, the suffering of this pandemic, uh, which was m more than likely caused by science. <laughs> so, and that's kind of. Hold on a second. No, 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 no. Not, listen, listen. I'll, it's I'll, coffee. I wouldn't I'm, do that. To you. I wouldn't for, do that to you. I'm so what, what do you? Takes, well, what do you? What, 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 what do you mean by? Do you mean like well, so this, perhaps a, there's, there's a chance that this was created in a lab? There's an investigation. A chance? Well, but I, so, I, 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 oh I, if God. there was evidence, I'd love to hear it. There's I just don't a know. novel respiratory coronavirus 
overtaking Wuhan, China. What do we do? Oh, you know who we could ask? The Wuhan novel respiratory coronavirus lab. The disease is the same name as the lab. That's just, that's just a little too weird, don't you think? And then they ask those scientists, they're like, how did this... So wait a minute, you work at the Wuhan respiratory coronavirus lab. How did this happen? And they're like, mm, a pangolin kissed a turtle. And you're like, no. I, you, you, the wait, name hey, of your lab... Wait. If you look at the name, look at the name. Can I... Let me see your business card. Show me your business card. Oh, I work at the coronavirus lab in Wuhan. Oh, because there's a coronavirus loose in Wuhan. How did that happen? Maybe a bat flew into the cloaca of a turkey and then it sneezed into my chili and now we all have coronavirus. Like, come on. Okay, okay, okay. Wait a second. What about this? What about this? Listen to this. Wait a second. All right. John. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. There's been an outbreak of chocolatey goodness near Hershey, Pennsylvania. What do you think happened? Like, oh, I don't know. Maybe a steam shovel made it with a cocoa bean. Or it's the chocolate factory. Maybe that's it. That could be. That could be. That, that could By be. By the way, Let me... I gave them all tuberculosis. Just yes. That could, that could very well be, and Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins at NIH have said, like, it should definitely be investigated. Don't stop with the logic and people and things. But, yeah, Matt Taibbi, I mean, he even said that the fact-checkers, you know, basically took a beating over the, the Fauci emails mm-hmm. um, and, this, and this lab leak theory. So, yeah, continue with what you're saying. Yeah. So, I, I mean, and I do, I do think there's, there's some legitimacy to that. And certainly when John Stewart is saying something, then, you know, it's within the kind of acceptable bounds of liberal discourse, you know, because he's, you know, about as middle of the road kind of liberalism as you can get. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, the, the other thing about it, the other way, you know, that it's mainstream is that, um, Fauci has now said it's a possibility. Biden has said it's a possibility and called for an investigation. Um, oh, I should also mention that it's not just that John Stewart said it on Colbert's show and Colbert just sat there silently. He agreed with John Stewart. Right. And Colbert has all this resistance cred now, you know, because he's almost been like this Democratic Party flank, you know, in the media sphere now, strangely. So. Right. So, yeah, that's a big deal as well. I mean, that's that's almost like to me, it's not as big deal as like Ellen coming out and saying it, but it's kind of close. <laughs> it's getting there. I mean, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if the day after we record this, Ellen comes out and does some kind of, uh, you know, statement on it. I don't know why she would, but it wouldn't like shock me at this point because of how, you know, deeply into the the mainstream discourse this has gotten. And to such an extent, this is what's kind of, I think, where we're at a weird point right now is that nobody really, when you push them, the people in the mainstream will say, I definitely think it came from a lab, or I know it came from a lab, or I know, you know, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology created this virus and it escaped from there. What they'll say is, well, you can't rule it out 
or, you know, there's a lot there that should be looked at. But I think beneath that, they do believe. I mean, I, I think it is seeping into the discourse in a way that people are now convinced of the truth of it, not just convinced that it was something we shouldn't have dismissed. Although, you know, you talk to most scientists and most scientists still will kind of hedge and, and, and say, and here I'm talking about, you know, kind of knowledgeable or people embedded within the kind of science media uh, establishment will say, well, the most likely explanation is that it came from nature, but we can't rule out that it came from uh, a lab. And that, that's kind of, I think, the dominant framework right now. And I mean, for me, th this is kind of the framework I've had for since the beginning or since pretty close to the beginning, which is that there was, it, it seemed pretty obvious to me that there was not a way of absolutely ruling out that this came from a lab. And there was a weird, big circumstantial thing here where the Wuhan Institute of Virology exists in Wuhan, which is the place where the uh, where the uh, pandemic, at least in terms of the mainstream narrative or any narrative really is that it started in Wuhan and yeah, so the those, known timeline as we know it for yes, that's been yes, verified exactly. even though the Italian or the Spanish sewage study said that there might yes. have been COVID present in 2019 we don't really know for a hundred percent for sure I mean it's just that's we just don't. what's yeah where the narrative is right now right and 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 I was just trying to say within but that in itself is what's um, notable, I guess, is that you have a, by the official narrative, it starts in Wuhan and there's a big BSL-4 laboratory there. So that feels like something that's maybe not just a coincidence, which doesn't mean that it came from Wuhan. It could mean that it was planted in Wuhan or that it had escaped somewhere else and it was made, you know, it kind of uh, was identified an outbreak happened in Wuhan. So that was boosted up or, or, or something to that effect. You know, there are other angles you can look at. And I think we talked about a lot of those on the, the previous episode. Uh, but all I was trying to get at with that is just that I, I don't, one of the weird things that's happened is that nothing has really come out. That's new yeah, in terms yeah, yes, of yes. the actual, substance of the origins of the virus there's really been no new information that's come out certainly since the last time we talked and what the only things that have come out are that the media narrative has shifted and i think uh, one big piece of it and this is kind of strange to me but nicholas wade who was a longtime science reporter for the new york times uh excuse me sorry wrote a um medium article that then was reposted to the bulletin of atomic scientists and those are the people that do that doomsday clock thing which always struck me as kind of an odd thing uh -huh. but at, at any rate um that got that seemed to turn it wasn't so much big for the public but it did seem to turn people within the media i think because nicholas wade was such a respected longtime establishment journalist and he was right. He wrote a very, very, very long article, similar kind of to the Nicholson Baker piece in New York that we had talked about. But Nicholas Wade had a little bit more science credibility than Nicholson Baker. 
And Nichols and Baker also, you could say, kind of like set the stage for then, oh, here's another guy writing another really long piece where he's putting a lot of pieces together. Now, one of the interesting things about that is that Nicholas Wade was kind of disgraced (laughs) several years ago because he wrote a book that was basically a race science book, as I understand it, saying that different races have different levels of intelligence and, you know, you can track IQ and black people have lower IQs than than white people and Asians have better and all this, you know, your, your, um, your classic, like eugenicist race science talking points, given a kind of, you know, pop science veneer of yeah. respectability Bell curve, and it was, kind of you know, kind of got him run out of town at least a little bit in terms of the establishment. And now somehow this, what was once a controversial subject that's now mainstream has turned him into has kind of revived his credibility in a way, I think. Um, what I know Thomas do Frank wrote a piece for The Guardian, similar to the Greenwald, Taibbi, Tracy kind of framing that of uh, this as a media story. And he put it all on this Nicholson, uh, uh, sorry, on this Nicholas Wade piece, that that was what kind of turned him around on that. So um, <laughs> I forgot exactly where I was going with all of that, but I think that the, ma- the main thing I wanted to hammer home is that there, there really is nothing new in terms of stuff about the virus, things that are the, the Wall Street Journal had a piece that talked about how the scientists at Wuhan had COVID-like symptoms and that they had this in like November 2019. So that would be right around the time that the outbreak supposedly happened. Now, that wasn't new. It was like you referred to. It was in the State Department, quote unquote, fact sheet that was released right at the end of Trump's term uh, by Pompeo. And uh, in that fact sheet, it said that the there were scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology who had suffered an illness or a cold-like illness or something. The only thing that was kind of new in the Wall Street Journal article was that the symptoms they had were COVID-like. And so that added one little additional layer to whatever narrative they're kind of building around that. Now, the, one of the interesting things about that is that that Wall Street Journal article, which was kind of a big splash, was co-written by Michael R. Gordon, who's pretty infamous for having co-written a lot of the Iraq WMD articles uh, with Judith Miller. And actually, if you go back even further, he was writing, he was writing uh, Iraq has like missiles that can deliver satellites to space and stuff in like 1989. So writing basically you know, fear-mongering stuff about Iraq uh, before the first Persian Gulf War as well, in addition to the obviously completely discredited WMD articles uh, that uh, he's so notorious for and completely destroyed Judith Miller's career. Um, And that in itself is very interesting because the framing that a lot of the kind of substack crowd, I don't want to call them alt-media, but, you know, whatever you would call that nexus of of people like in the Greenwald sphere, the framing they're using is that this media narrative for the past year and a half is equivalent to the WMD story in that the media got it so wrong and they accepted uncritically uh, the narrative from government officials or yada, yada, yada. Well, now here you have one of the major articles on the other side that's lending credence to the lab leak theory 
written by one of the major propagandists for the original WMD story. So that in itself is very strange. And Nicholas Wade himself, who I referred to earlier, was the New York Times, probably Maine, along with Scott Shane, um, anthrax reporters throughout the anthrax attacks and going all the way through the FBI's investigation. And um, I would say wrote some articles that were a little bit more skeptical or had at least some veneer of skepticism about the FBI's story but also wrote articles about how great the FBI's investigation was in terms of identifying that the anthrax used in some of the letters traced back to some vial in uh, Bruce Ivan's laboratory, which was one of the key pieces of their, um, you know, kind of what, you know, what looks probably like a frame up of Bruce Ivan's. So you, the, the, it's a very strange position now where it's kind of the, you know, uh, the alternative take to say that the lab leak is um, there is legitimacy to that when the lab leak is being is definitely a part of and whether it's true or not is a part of a kind of media campaign against China and is being pushed by some of the reporters who were also involved in pushing, you know, the Bush, uh, the, the Bush administration's uh, narratives related to Iraqi MDs and anthrax. If most of this, as you say, that's coming out now has no real new information in it. Um, what exactly is causing it to ramp up so quickly now? I mean, we know John Stewart has sort of made it okay now for liberals to believe this, but how did it get to that point? I mean, it seems like you know, this State Department report was leaked again or sent again to the media during Biden with this Josh Rogan, I think it was a Washington Post story, uh, where he he spoke about it in the Washington Post. Um, Fox News ran with that, that again. Wall Street Journal ran with that again. Um, I don't, and I don't know what was different about the second time that that ran. Maybe you can tell me, but what other things do you think that actually cause it to ramp up to this degree, I mean, what what was it if there's no new information coming out? Like, what would you say are the key media inserts or stories besides this guy, Nicholas Wade, um, you know, who's a little bit more credible than – or was his name Nicholas Wade? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, be- besides him, uh, what other things occurred, um, you know, to, that, that you think like pushed this into like to critical mass territory? I mean – you know, frankly, like why now? I think one of the big things is that Trump is no longer in office. And as long as Trump was in office, it felt like playing into his hands, I think, for the media to um, to run with this, even though, like you said, what they're pushing here with the State Department report is a State Department report that was crafted under Trump. So it, it's not as if really... There, there has been no shift in anything really other than Biden is now president instead of Trump. Biden's policy related to China is the same or possibly, you know, there's an argument it's even worse um, than it was under Trump. So, I mean, I do think that's a key piece. I think a lot of it is just that, you know, we're now a little bit on the upswing or it feels that way. And so maybe it feels a little bit less raw and we can 
talk more openly or that's the perception within the media. Um, I, I don't know exactly. Uh, Vanity Fair had an article uh, a mm. couple weeks ago, and it was pretty interesting because it was it was interesting on kind of a, a few different levels because what it was kind of purporting to show was that within the government, there had been this big fight among people mm. who really uh, agreed with the lab leak theory and people who were completely opposed to it. And this came out before the Fauci emails uh, were released recently, right? I think it was after, but it was right oh, around really? the same okay. time. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. The Fauci emails are another big piece of this too yeah. for and sure. And that reflects the Fauci emails just quickly reflects a similar narrative that there was an internal debate and it seemed pretty intense. I mean, I don't know, uh, you know, but this this is different though, but describe the Vanity Fair article. Yeah, so the Vanity Fair article kind of shows that uh well, for one that there was a whole COVID origin task force within the state department that was being run. No shit. Yeah, and it was being run you'll like this because it was being run by a guy who's now um, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. Um, Who? Uh, you know, I'm blanking on his name. If I can pull up the article. It would be I hilarious if it was a, it's probably not a military guy, but just f what's funny about the Hudson Institute is Pompeo, you know, goes directly from a state department uh, to uh, Hudson. And okay. he, and oh, Hudson yeah. is oh, actually, taking credit now for pushing the lab leak theory very very early on they're they're sort of well that makes sense that because this guy's name is david asher and oh yeah um, okay yep. so you know him. and if you look at his credit you know his his um his background is not in pandemic origins or anything like that or virology you know his background is in like uh i don't know south china sea <laughs> you know all the the <laughs> military and neocon yeah propaganda. the neocon think tank <laughs> stuff that they you know, just hammer on. They've been hammering on for 30 years or whatever when it comes to China. Of course. So, um, so there was this kind of like push and pull apparently behind the scenes. And uh, there were a lot of people who apparently felt that it was, um, they would lose a lot of credibility if they were to push very hard on the lab leak idea. And um, uh, why? I think they just they they didn't want to look like they were crazies is is kind of what how okay. the article frames it at least uh so and that's kind of internally to the government they didn't want to look crazy so they I didn't see. want to be pushing is, this really hard and then another part of the government that's a little more you know nuanced or whatever uh kind of discredits i guess which is just so weird to think that that would even be an issue right now and maybe this is just my naive thinking i mean the they're they're doing 60 minute specials about ufos now and like pushing that as like a credible thing and and people in the government are afraid of you know seeming crazy for saying that True. this could be a chinese well this was all under trump interesting that they were okay they were yeah. doing this so i think i don't know you know i i, I don't know that so I this was like months several months ago this is not this is not recently. Yeah, this is all really last or... year that they were doing a okay. lot of this. And then it, it kind of slowly, they started to ramp up evidence, I think. Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, which is kind of a whole weird thing in itself that I don't really understand, which is technically non-government, but it basically yeah, is the government. It's bullshit. Yeah, yeah, right. And they do all kinds of crazy 
you know, mad scientist experiments there or whatever. Yeah. Watch uh, if anybody uh, out there wants to watch the very first pilot episode for Breaking the Set. It's Abby and I covering the Lawrence Livermore Lab. Oh, really? We grew up in Pleasanton, which is right the city next to Livermore. Oh, yeah. I'll have to check that it's, out. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, apparently they have something called Z Division, which is their like intelligence arm, and so they this Z Division wrote a whole report about how, you know, there was a lot of uh, plausibility of the lab leak theory, and then that was one of these things where it was month it was came they wrote that like last May, and then it started coming out in reports, kind of in like April May of this year, around the same time that everything else is coming out and blowing up. That, so it, just another piece adding legitimacy to uh, that the lab leak theory is legitimate and that um, actually people in the government have been looking at this for quite a long time while Facebook. Where was, was that one reported? The Livermore Lab uh, uh, Z Division investigation. That's a good question. Let me see if I have it up here. Because um, was that the one that was was that the one that was basically saying that Biden was trying to suppress this? Because the New York there Post was that, spun. Yeah. That was yeah, a different I article, I think. Yeah, and I don't know. It says that, um, I mean, yeah, I don't know if this is completely unrelated to what you're talking about. But, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I'll, I'll pull this up in the meantime. Yeah, so this was, as far as I know, it says exclusive in the headline, so I'm going to run with that. Uh, it actually was reported by WJLA, which is, <laughs> interestingly, the, I believe, Frederick, Maryland, um, ABC affiliate which um, is obviously where Fort Detrick is. Um, and also who did some of the original reporting on the U.S. Amrid Fort Detrick shutdown that happened in 2019. Um, but Z Division, yeah, so um, it, anyway, Z Division is some kind of intelligence arm of Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. Uh, there was a guy I know whose last name is Rakestraw, and there's almost always when you dig into these, at least on the science end, there there always seems to be an anthrax connection. And so yeah. <laughs> this Rakestraw guy was actually involved in creating, um, I forget what it's called, bio, it's something like BioGuard. It was these, uh, like a, supposed to be a bioweapons detection technology. And they were actually developing this before the anthrax attacks. And then after yeah, this the is apparently attacks, something that, uh, that that actually was active in the White House, I think, right. technology similar to this. And I think they put it maybe in like some New York subways or something. And the mm -hmm. big controversy around it is that it didn't seem to work in any way. But they were creating it, like I said, before the anthrax attacks even happened, supposedly in preparation for the 2002 Olympics, I guess because there had been the attack at the 1996 Olympics and so... Uh, the, and there was all the, you know, I mean, there was so much fear mongering about anthrax and bioweapons in the late 90s, you know, leading up to 2001 and the anthrax attacks. Um, well, are, are yeah. you just really quickly, are you saying that do you think that this Vanity Fair article um, was a really big, important uh, stepping stone to get it to go mainstream because uh, there might have been actually more people internally who wanted to get the story out, feeding out more things to the media, like not just the story in and of itself, yeah. Vanity Fair, but it reflects that there is stuff being leaked. I would, yeah, I would say okay. definitely that the story itself came probably too late. I mean, it came a few weeks after everybody had kind of already decided that uh, it was okay to talk about this. Um, sure. 
But yeah, it's interesting for revealing the dynamics that were apparently happening behind the scenes. It was also interesting for revealing that in January 2021, January of this year, um, the State Department actually held like a video conference kind of thing about uh, COVID origin and could it have come from a lab. And the people they invited to be a part of that were David Relman, who is a uh, kind of well-known, I don't know, biosafety pandemic kind of guy. Alina Chan, who I think we've talked about, but is one of the biggest, has been one of the people over the past year who's been the most prominent in mainstreaming and giving a respectable kind of face to um, the lab leak hypothesis. And Ralph Barrett, who, (laughs) of course, worked with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and did tons of gain of function research. And is, from my perspective, one of the people, no matter how, if, if you believe this came from a lab anywhere in the world, he is one of the people you would absolutely have to consider a top suspect for being, at the very least, involved in the research leading up to it, if not the creation of SARS-CoV-2 itself. And he's increasingly becoming uh, a suspect, even by some things I'm seeing on Fox News um, I see people in very mainstream places saying that he's a potential suspect or should at least answer for things. And I, right. I, that's just really surprising to me. Peter Dasek seems to have almost nobody in his corner anymore. He's been kind of beat up and rightly so, I would I would say, Peter, I mean, EcoHealth. So the both is, of them have lost well, a lot Ralph of Well, Ralph Barrick, yeah, it's interesting. He's, his uh, reputation is in flux, I would say. He is probably the person like – Immediately, if you started looking into coronaviruses, gain-of-function research, he was the guy you would find last year. And I'm talking like February of last year. People were uh, uh, pointing out the 2015 Nature paper that he did with Xi Zheng Li and pointing out all of the gain-of-function. You know, he is known for gain-of-function research with coronaviruses. And that was he, still very fringe, though, I feel that. I mean, oh, you're it was talking definitely about- fringe then, yeah. Yeah. So, but now it seems like it's that's their the mainstream is starting to veer into talking about it. I guess what I was people. trying to say, yeah, is that among people who are following this on the let's say subterranean level, alternative level, <laughs> he was always somebody you would be looking at as possibly being involved, a, sus- okay, a yes, suspicious yes. character. And I, think you were the one of those people who's been looking at it on that level. So yeah. In your yeah. mind, he's been suspicious for over a year. Yeah. Top of the list, right? Yeah. And there was an effort, I think, to try to launder his image because around August of last year, this is pretty early on, he gave an interview to Italian TV, which is a little strange because it's you know not going to get that much play, uh, saying that he thought, yeah, it is possible it came from a lab. I don't think it necessarily did, but it's possible. That's kind of how he framed it. And he made another statement. He actually gave a, a quote like that to... Nicholson Baker. So Nicholson Baker talks about Ralph Barrick. He talks about his work, but he also quotes Ralph Barrick and he does quite a bit of kind of nuancing or massaging his image. He quotes him. Obviously, um, Barrick talked to him for the article. And one of the big things that happened, another kind of big chunk of how this narrative was shaped, is that in May of uh, this year, uh, mid May, Science Magazine wrote, uh, uh, published a letter. Uh, that was written by several prominent scientists. Now, three of those people are David Relman, Alina Chan, 
and Ralph Barrett was on the letter. And they were calling for there needs to be a new investigation. Uh, you know, the WHO wasn't enough and we need to um, have a wow. true investigation into the origins of COVID. Now, wow. this is what turned me around on some of these people that I, David Relman's a guy that I actually thought was kind of more uh, opposed or anti-gain of function. And I had found this video back last, I don't know, April or something of him kind of interrogating Ralph Barrick in a conference setting about the work that he's doing. And is it really morally permissible to, you know, create these viruses that are optimized for human transmission? And Alina Chan is somebody that I had kind of followed. She's very prominent on Twitter. Like I said, she's been one of the main people. She kind of mainstreamed some of the information that a lot of the information that's collected by this group called Drastic, which is like a loose group of people that are a lot more fringy who are doing their own kind of research into things related to Wuhan and related to COVID related to gain of function research. I mean, there's kind of a sprawling mass of research. And then she would kind of like popularize it through her Twitter thread. And I, rem I there was an interview panel with her. She was on it. Nicholson Baker was on it. Um, there were a couple other people. And I think it was Nicholson Baker. It might have been this other guy in, um, whose name I'm, I'm blanking on. Relgado, I think is the last name, who had had done a bunch of anthrax reporting back in the day. Um, and he said, you know, basically Elena Chan is the Twitter feed that I got, or it's like my one-stop shop where I go to, to learn about what's going on with the lab leak hypothesis. And just really quickly, Elena Chan, um, we kind of were pretty soft on her in the last episode. Yeah. Uh, I think your attitude on her was that, you know, you weren't sure about what, where she was politically, but she wasn't, she wasn't inserting too much anti-China propaganda in there. So we sort of, you know, went with her reporting. Um, I, I mean, I guess... The only red flag for me, mostly because I didn't really know who she was, is the fact that Wall Street Journal seems to be one of the more credible right wing outlets. You know, it's it's still read by people like in the financial industry, of course. Uh, you know, it's it's read by you know elites still, um, and has influence, kind of like Bloomberg as an outlet has influence. So, she's a scientist, a lab scientist, I guess you'd say. She works okay because she's the, written stuff for Wall Street Journal. I guess she did. Uh, she did co-author a piece uh, that was one of the earlier kind of let's take a look at this kind of pieces on. Okay, the so it's just like a it was just like a one-time yes, piece that she yes. did for them. Okay, and got the, it. Okay, so then okay, she did write so it with ahead, somebody sorry. who is a little bit sus, but I can't remember who that was. But anyway, so I you know this kind of turned me around because what I was think or what it appeared to me was happening was that they, there was an attempt to launder Ralph Barrick's image and to make it so that he was kind of the um, the maybe honorable guy. He was turning from the guy who had done some of this research, worked with Wuhan, but he knows that it can be dangerous and, you know, actually the lab leak is really a possibility. And so he's going to kind of like slowly edge into the the mainstream and actually be one of the people to, you know, call for an investigation. And in fact, the New York Post wrote an editorial. This was an editorial board editorial, so a staff editorial, where they called for a 9-11 commission style investigation into origins of COVID. And they said, you know, one person who could never be on it is Peter Dosick, 
And one person who should be on it is Ralph Barrett. So I think what? this is absolutely what Alina Chan was trying to do, because what I did was look back through her Twitter feed and find that there was no criticism of Ralph Barrick throughout the entire time she had been tweeting about this. She basically comes out of nowhere in like May of last year, May of 2020, and had almost no tweets before that, very few, and pretty benign about her work. And then to full force every day, 20 tweets a day, and it's all about lab leak hypothesis. And she very much positioned herself as the source, the credible person to go to if you want to, you know, find out more about this. Theory. Sure. She had never criticized Ralph Barrick and, in fact, was um, was um, sympathetic to him and even offering kind of defenses of his work and, and defenses of his character. So, you know, I kind of looked a little bit into Alina Chan's background. And I wouldn't say there's anything that shows that she was like involved with this kind of research, but she is involved in a kind of, I guess what I would call kind of elite science world where um, she has done a lot of work on gene editing type of research, you know, stuff involving CRISPR uh, and was involved in this project called, um, her main thing is, is what's called human artificial chromosomes, which are, what they sound like synthetic chromosomes that match up to what's in a human. And it's a way of supposedly delivering right into your DNA, more or less uh, these kind of alterations or, or things that you can do. And I found a, um, a, a presentation she had given where she will be very cagey about what this actually was. But as far as I understand it, what it was, was she took a protein out of Ebola and she injected it into like human cells and then delivered um, herpes, the herpes virus into the cell and showed that that Ebola protein neutralizes your, um, antivi your, your natural antiviral response that your body has and basically allows it to start just, you know, reproducing herpes. So, her you know, herpes can get into your system really well if you have this... Um, uh, Ebola gene, uh, Ebola protein, Ebola derived protein with it. So that to me is the kind of like the, the same kind of what sounds very dangerous and kind of crazy science. And I'm sure she would have a scientific justification for what this is all about, but you know, that, that she's kind of in that same world of people who think that this stuff is okay and don't really feel a need to be answerable in any way to the public for it. And so I also found that on another project, she had gotten funding from DARPA, uh, which is the, you know, defense's research arm, and that she had a lot of connections to uh, scientists who were also connected into this kind of Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein world, because Jeffrey Epstein was very embedded into the kind of elite networks of science at MIT and Harvard. Um, and was really into these ideas about transhumanism and altering the human genome. And she had also worked on this project that was called uh, GP Right or Human GP Right, HGP Right, which was about creating an entire genome of a human being that was completely artificial. This was kind of a big project, and there was a secretive meeting that happened at Harvard. Um, that was um, led by this guy, George Church, who um, 
has talked about how he wants to do gene editing for intelligence. Um, you know, in other words, make people smarter through gene editing, that kind of thing. So, you know, I don't know. The more I, I looked into it, the more I, I, I felt like this is somebody who is not a completely disinterested party and is somebody who is kind of connected into these networks. And this was before it actually, it actually before the Vanity Fair article came out that, that revealed that she had been on this private video call with the State Department talking about how lab leak is actually, you know, really um, a possibility with Ralph Barrick on the call as well, you know, as a, an active participant. So, um, you know, she got very mad at the thread I did and said that I should ask for money from the CCP and, um, you know, kind of maybe showing a little bit of, of the, what's coloring her thinking, which I, I more and more think is there is an anti-China um, element to the way that she's framing things. And like I said, she's maybe been passed. Well, I wouldn't say she's been passed over because in a lot of the article, the big articles you'll read, if you look for her name, she's quoted very often. You know, she's one of the go-to people uh, for media right now because she's built up this credibility because she was talking about it since uh, May of last year or whatever. She sort of, you think, has an anti-China slant or might be revealed in that interchange that you had with her. But what about Ralph Barrick? Has he shown any slant towards that or has he moved in that direction? Or I, I feel like he was even accused of being like working with like the CCP at one time or something. Yeah, I would say I, I haven't seen that from him. And I wouldn't say that he um, the thing is, he hasn't given a whole lot of statements. And when he does, they're they're relatively uh, guarded, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Um, but just him moving towards the concept of saying he now thinks it's possible that it's a lab leak and we need to investigate. That's a really huge deal. Yeah. I mean, and I would say and that's the, very strange. Too. Yeah. And when the Trump state department is basically calling him the people who are most, you know, like anti-China trying to pin this on China, trying to build up the case for a lab leak, which they did with the fact sheet, they released like on the eve that Trump left office. Um, you know, they're doing a private video call where they're inviting Ralph Barrick to come talk to them about, I don't know, you know, about what was going on at Wuhan or what uh, he thinks happened with the lab leak or, you know, whatever. So um, and he now is getting quoted in in media, you know, fairly often as well, being a person who's um, lending credibility and legitimacy to the story because of his background in virology, coronavirology in particular. And I mean, Ralph Barrick has a lot of disturbing background as well. I mean, he is definitely tied into the military industrial biowarfare complex. He was the first person to clone SARS and he did that at Fort Detrick. Um, he, uh, he, his really claim to fame is that he was he developed methods for uh, doing viral clones, uh, in other words, cloning viruses. And he created uh, this what what he termed noceum method where he's able to create a viral clone uh, or create synthetic recombinants, meaning basically hybrid or chimera viruses that show no evidence of having been in a lab or having been created by a lab. Uh, whereas prior to that, there were, I don't know, you could, if you analyze the genome, you could find these kind of 
quote unquote seams within the viral uh, genome that would tell you, okay, this was created in a lab. He developed a method where you could hide that and you could create, I mean, if you wanted to, he wouldn't say this, a bioweapon and nobody would know that it came out of a lab because of this, this method that he developed. And um, there's a guy named Edward Hammond who um, used to run a, uh, an organization called the Sunshine Project, which was a great organization that was around for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. And it was really tracking after the anthrax attacks and then after SARS-1, there was a huge buildup of the bio, quote unquote biodefense complex. And the United States started going crazy funding bio, what they call biodefense and what I would probably call a bioweapons program or something very close to it. Of course. And um, he's been on Twitter a little more prominent or a little more recently, this guy, Edward Hammond. And he said that um, Ralph Barrick uh, told him, I think it was back in around 2008, that he wasn't concerned about a coronavirus pandemic because he had a vaccine developed. <laughs> And so he could just take the That's vaccine, so funny. which is a pretty psychotic thing to say. And I, I, I believe I haven't been able to exactly track this quite properly, but I believe he did actually get a patent on a, a coronavirus vaccine in January of 2020. This isn't apparently the one that's obviously being used, which is specific to um, uh, to covid, you know, or the, the ones that are being used around the world. Um. But that's very strange. And Edward Hammond also said that he was pretty sure and had maybe documented somewhere that Ralph Barrick was a Jason. And probably a lot of people don't know what that is, but it's this elite, kind of almost Masonic-like in the sense, or like fraternal type of organization in the sense that the way you join is by one member, like uh, inviting another member. But anyway, they're this elite group of scientists who um, do these very secret research projects for the military and they tend to be very big kind of splashy uh types of projects and some of them have been revealed but i think about half of them are completely secret and um a lot of them sometimes you know the name but they haven't revealed actually what they did and there are um there were jason projects on synthetic viruses and uh bioweapons you know the exact types of things that it looks like ralph barrick was really working on all of which is to say Basically, if there's a guy working on coronavirus bioweapons for the United States, it's probably Ralph Barrick. Um, and, and one other thing just to mention is that he also was one of the people who was heavily involved in developing remdesivir, which is still the only um, in the United States, the only approved treatment for COVID, even though it doesn't seem to work much at all. And that was developed with Gilead Sciences, which is a very spooked up um pharmaceutical company uh donald rumsfeld used to be the head of it you know mm. so i'll tell you uh quite a bit about it right there and um they that was remdesivir was actually developed at us amrid and um which is fort detrick so you know there there appears to be that and it was developed as an ebola um treat uh, ebola treatment and um was then kind of repurposed when um uh, when COVID came out to try to make it, turn it into a COVID uh, treatment, even though, like I said, it, it does not seem to work all that well. 
Um, so that's very strange too, that there's this kind of a connection to Ebola there. It is. I mean, and it's also kind of strange, just random coincidence that fentanyl is also very commonly used in the treatment of uh, COVID, you know, co- patients that have a, a bad cases of COVID and then sort of fentanyl is, you know, largely blamed on China. There's this, you know, scary thing that China's inflicting on us. Yeah. But that's a completely irrelevant point. I just wanted to interpret a little bit what you've been saying, just for people who might have gotten lost with some of the things you were saying. I, it, I, I think what strikes me the most about what you're saying is this was a reporter that you somewhat at first trusted when you were doing even deep dive research on this. We had spoken about her article about it. She seemed like she was pushing this idea that, you know, um, it could be, uh, a, you know, something that leaked from this lab because of gain of function research, because of the scary research that was being done there. Uh, and Ralph Barrick as well was someone who was a suspect. But what you're finding is that some of these people are actually involved in some of this same stuff. So it's it's not as like black and white as it seems. And I think that's that's like an important point that I need to raise over and over again when talking about this kind of stuff, because let's, let's also just briefly talk about Fauci, because this is something that's been presented as like, you know, Trump, his movement, the right wing media, the populists versus the elites. It's always been sort of been like them against Fauci and Fauci represents the globalists. Fauci represents the Chinese, the Bill Gates, etc. Now, you and I both know that that's obviously a huge oversimplification. It's not black and white like that. But things are sort of presented, you know, have been presented that way, generally speaking. Um, But, you know, what what you've just said, Gumby, shows how bizarre and gray area this gets, where, um, you know, you find these people sort of playing both sides. Like, why would Ralph Barrick even want to expose himself like this, you know, Um, and you also have to wonder, like, why is the science been so politicized during COVID to the extent where, you know, the idea of like a consensus scientific, uh, a scientific consensus on this is just completely broken down, um, you know, since this has happened. It's, it's everything is very, very chaotic. Um, but, you know, you, so you think it's partly because Biden is in office now and Trump sort of had too much of a tainted reputation uh, that this is part of the reason why this is being resurrected now, uh, that this administration, Biden is quote unquote more credible, even though Biden is basically like a, he just seems to be getting more and more senile by the day. Um, it's it's actually pretty alarming how out, I just even just hearing audio, like I was listening to him on Sirius, I wasn't even watching him recently saying something at that NATO speech and he sounded like worse than Reagan like I was like oh my god like this is actually like this sounds worse than like Ronald Reagan at the very end of his term Mm -hmm. you know it was it was pretty shocking but I mean so I think it's definitely possible that Trump was really sloppy with the rollout of the lab leak he did become too much of a toxic figure to get this narrative to fully float There was some weirdness and confusion, not just with him saying that, you know, COVID was fine, it wasn't a big deal, and then trying to also blame this on China, why Biden might be bringing in more credibility. Because, you know, the Biden administration is obviously not stirring up this much craziness, 
And it also does reflect that it's not as black and white as it seems. I mean, it's not just because there's been some holdovers from the Trump administration like Christopher Wray. Um, it's because, you know, as you mentioned, this Pompeo State Department report was just sort of laundered and thrown back out there under the Biden administration. There's definitely continuity uh, here. It's it's kind of interesting, too, because some of these far-right actors who were pushing this at the very beginning, like Tom Cotton, like Bannon, they were pushing it, but not like the regular neocons. They weren't. But now we sort of have them even turning towards pushing it a little bit. Like now the Foundation for Defense of Democracies is starting to push it. Mark Dubowitz seems to be feeling more safe now that Biden is in power. Uh, Max Boot actually had an editorial out recently saying why the lab leak theory couldn't fly under Trump, how it could fly now, and basically mostly explaining why it couldn't fly under Trump, whether it's true or not, because Trump optically was such a disgrace. So that to me is pretty revealing as to like what, you know, where this, what direction this could go in and kind of what's really happening here where it's not necessarily that Trump really was a threat to the establishment that is that he just really tarnished the reputation of trying to get some of these things off the ground, trying to get some of these propaganda campaigns that so seamlessly work before off the ground. Right. Even Atlantic Council is now writing, they wrote a big uh, paper that anonymously multiple people probably wrote this, uh, that was pushing for regime change in China from February 2021. So attached to all this, back to my point about how Fauci sort of becomes, represents this globalist establishment force versus the populists, you know, the people who've been trying to get the truth out about this lab leak. Tell me a little bit about what happened, why that was such a big change, and, you know, and how Fauci even ended up is coming out and saying that he thinks it could have leaked from a lab now. I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible. So yeah. how did we get there? And what, just comment also on what you think about this weird binary black and white perception that it's like Fauci, you know, Fauci and the elites versus, you know, the anti-establishment patriots. Well, Fauci has a, uh, a deep history, <laughs> let's call it, because he's been in the same position for since like 1985, which is basically unheard of in government. Yeah. And it's not even the top, he's not the head of NIH. He's at NIAID, which is underneath NIH, although I believe he has the biggest salary in the federal government or something like that. And, um, you know, he, he was appointed by Reagan. So, you know, this wouldn't be your classic, uh, uh, liberal or, uh, classic, uh, you know, liberal hero, maybe globalist, you know, uh, appointed by Reagan. And, you know, at the beginning, the people who had the biggest problem with Fauci uh, was ACT UP, the um, AIDS activist group, who were, I mean, you can go back and look at their literature, but they were brutal to Fauci, like more brutal than uh, Steve Bannon or anybody is today. They, Larry Kramer, who is one of the big ACT UP guys, called him, like the source of all evil in the world and said that, you know, like basically there was nobody they hated more than him and that it was like a pill pushing, you know, death merchant and all this stuff. He was Be- almost like Dan White. I remember, I mean, in the eighties, it was kind of like he was yeah, an avatar yeah. for like the gay community's hatred and, and they know, used next to, to Ronald Reagan, basically. Yeah. They, they would protest. There's that great movie, um, how to survive a plague, which is all, um, uh, like, um, uh, footage of ACT UP and stuff that that's spliced together and it's done really well and it shows them, you know, uh, protesting outside of NIH and FDA and you know they were they were very 
vicious against him. Apparently, Larry Kramer kind of softened later in life, and they kind of had like a a frenemy type relationship a little bit. But the the point is just that you know he is not your classic liberal hero, and he he has other issues. And <laughs> there was a funny thing where I uh, I uh, was just watch I flipped on like an old SNL. And I was because I was just trying to see what they did right after 9-11 just to see what it was like. And the cold open for one of the sketches was Chris Kattan playing Fauci. <laughs> and the joke of it was that um, that they, you know, the, the government had gone way out of their way. You know, we've decontaminated the White House. We've decontaminated uh, the the Capitol building. Uh, but all those reporter buildings and, every, and all the post offices, uh, you know, we gave him some hand wipes or something like that. So it was wow. a, a joke at Fauci's expense, or at least at the expense of the government with Fauci as kind of the mouthpiece of it. Um, you know, that basically they didn't care that much about um, the anthrax attacks as far as it affected, you know, the, the relatively, um, you know, lower class uh, postal workers. So, you know, interesting there. And obviously Fauci, you know, w- was involved in, I think, you know, getting a lot of a ton of funding after um, after the anthrax attacks happened and funneling it into this biodefense, biosecurity type of work. So we're not going to try to cure flu or or, um, you know, make sure that, you know, we don't have a flu season every year, get a, uh, you know, a, a really helpful vaccine for some, you know, something that kills a lot of people. But we're going to start funding research to you know make remake the spanish flu virus or um you know make um h5n1 in a lab and make it more virulent i mean this is the type of stuff they were funding and that was the reason why in 2014 uh the obama administration actually paused the funding for so-called gain-of-function research the type of research where you make viruses more virulent um, which was undone under Trump. <laughs> so Trump turned the spigot back on to allow um, uh, Fauci uh, to fund, you know, dangerous gain-of-function research. Now, whether Trump himself was involved in that decision or had any idea what it even meant at the time that it happened, I have no idea. But, you know, the sure. point is just that, yeah, like you said, there is not a black and white Fauci is the globalist, Trump is the, the deep state globalist fighter or whatever. It, it's much more nuanced. Now, as far as COVID goes, Fauci has played a very strange role, be, in a, which is, again, not black and white, because one of the first things when he came out that he came out and said was, do not wear a mask. And he told everybody, don't wear a mask. And the first month or two of the pandemic was all about how you shouldn't buy a mask because it was taking away from, you know, the people, frontline workers who really needed it or that kind of thing. And then there was a complete reversal where it's, you know, wear a mask, uh, you know, all the time. And um, so that was just one element of it. But what the the emails so there were emails FOIA'd by both BuzzFeed and Washington Post, and they kind of dropped on the same day. And BuzzFeed seemed to have gotten more. At least those were the ones I looked at more. And it is pretty interesting because they came out like. A week or two after Fauci, after a a clip of Rand Paul grilling Fauci, um, you know, in front of Congress or whatever congressional committee kind of went viral. viral, And, you know, like you said, he really did kind of lay into him and he brought up really, you know, pretty good points that 
that Fauci sure. mostly denied. Um, and he denied specifically, this is what I kind of picked up on. A lot of people picked up on that he denied that they ever funded gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And there's like a very contorted way where you could say that's not a lie because they did it through a cutout and it, maybe it wasn't technically gain-of-function, yada, yada, yada. But there was a pretty clear lie <laughs> or a pretty clear um, uh, thing that didn't line up, which is he he said pretty clearly that Ralph Barrick does not do gain-of-function research. And what was funny is that one of the very first emails in the BuzzFeed drop was him sending that 2015 Nature Medicine article written by Fauci and co-authored by Xu Zheng Li that we talked about. And the PDF is literally titled something like uh, Barrick Xi uh, Gain of Function Paper. <laughs> <laughs> so it's literally, you know, literally the file name yeah. says the phrase Gain of Function. Total outright caught red-handed yes, in a lie. It, it's, you know, basically a direct lie. Um, but can I just say something really quick? Yeah, yeah. I just thought of something. This Rand Paul interchange seemed really charged. You know, Rand Paul almost seems like kind of like an attack dog nowadays. Like, he doesn't represent, you know, the libertarian movement. He represents some kind of political faction, it, it seems to me. Yeah. Um, and even though most of what he said is obviously true... And, you know, even though there's some aspect of it that's still a limited hangout to some degree, it's relatively, you know, it was relatively um, candid and, and I thought mostly, you know, surprisingly truthful. It's, it's interesting to think back to nothing new has come out to show us that that paper trail was there. That's already been known for a very long time. So to think that Rand Paul would only dig into Fauci now about that is kind of interesting. Why now? Uh, would Rand Paul jump at the chance? Was it is Rand Paul kind of you know riding the wave of the media uh, presence of this topic again? I it mean, what, what do you like think he about was, that? Was to some extent because he did refer pretty heavily to the Nicholson Baker piece. Okay. Um. And where did that? What what outlet did that come out in? Uh, New York Magazine. Okay. Which was kind of a odd place. I mean, you know, it's not necessarily the place you would expect, or it doesn't have a an obvious agenda, except that it's targeted more toward a liberal audience so that that maybe was one thing that helped make it palatable to a broader audience and fauci you know he doesn't really say much in that exchange except to deny a lot of things that you know basically are untrue and um the another thing that the emails kind of revealed and you know this kind of gets into the you have to kind of look at the timeline a little bit but some of the earliest emails in there are with people like Christian Anderson and this guy named Ron Fuchier, who's actually one of the worst gain of function people uh, on the planet. He was one of the guys who um, uh, made the more virulent H5N1 in a lab. And there was, I, I believe, a leak incident related to that. Um, but anyway, the, the point is just that um, what it showed, what it seemed to show is that Fauci had a hand in getting the nature medicine article kind of out there and that he was in, he seemed to be involved behind the scenes and kind of shaping the narrative so that uh to debunk the lab leak theory that was kind of floating out there a little bit and one of the interesting things that christian anderson is um i, I forget what he where he's affiliated with 
but he was the main author of this piece that ran of this article that ran in Nature Medicine. It came out probably in April of 2020, somewhere around there. And um, it was the main article that's cited by everybody who wants to cite this kind of thing, saying that it basically saying it's impossible that it came out of a lab, that it is definitely natural. And um, there were some other co-authors on that, uh, including a guy I could talk about, but maybe it's better to focus. And um, what it showed is that Fauci was was on these email chains with a lot of these different guys. Now, Fauci doesn't say much in email. He clearly is a guy who prefers the phone. And I assume that's partially because he doesn't want things like this to be FOIA'd that much. Um, but one of the interesting things that Christian Anderson, when he first emailed Fauci, said things where he actually thought that it lo- it showed some signs of being synthetic if you looked at the genome and that, um, you know, there was a possibility that it it, it could have come from a lab. Um, now, he claims he claimed after those emails came out that, well, he changed his mind after he looked at the evidence and that's what he put into his nature medicine piece. Now, the nature medicine piece, I would say, was never really very well argued. It basically, its argument was basically like, if you were going to make a virus in a lab, here's how you do it, how you do it. Well, this virus doesn't look exactly like that, so it couldn't have been made in a lab. But the thing was, he was only really looking at one method of how you would make it in a lab. And there are many other methods, you can do serial passing, all this other stuff that really wasn't accounted for. So it, it, for anybody that was kind of following it at the time, it did not look very satisfactory as a debunking. But Christian Anderson was, you know, very prominent on Twitter and other places trying to debunk, 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 you know, crush down the lab leak theory. And then shortly after these, um, uh, these emails got released, you know, he got even more pressure on social media and he ended up deleting a bunch of tweets and then nuking his account completely. So it, it does look a little bit fishy there. And like I said, if you if you look at the timeline, it really does look like Fauci was involved with that kind of first article in shaping it or having some input into it on some to some degree or on some level. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I do think it's right to pick on Fauci or to point these things out about him, especially now that he's uh, come out and and done an about face and said that it is possible that it came out of a lab. And I think that's just recognizing where the wind is blowing. I mean, to deny it too strongly kind of automatically puts some suspicion on you that you don't want. And I, I, I mean, I yeah. kind of feel like that's a big part of why he did that. Another thing that's weird is that he gave an interview a couple months ago, I guess it was, to New York Times, to the New York Times and said that he had received a white powder envelope um, yep. sometime last year. And, of course, Rand Paul also got a, a, a white powder envelope like a few days after that um, exchange with Fauci. Yeah. And um, I think we had referred it to it last time, but Peter Dosick actually got a uh, white powder envelope um, sometime in 2020 as well, sent to his home. Wow. So pretty incredible. Strange things happening there I, I don't know i guess one way to look at this is that this sort of organically built up to this level because you know there was just too much information stacking up too many little 
investigative reports being done, too many, you know, determined journalists digging stuff up, and that the wind eventually blew, and that people like Fauci and people like Barrick and some of these other people, you know, even including John Stewart, are now swayed to start talking about it, or they feel pressure, you know, in the Fauci's case, to start talking about it, because as you said, maybe even denying it too strongly would be suspicious now at this point. One other way to look at it, the more conspiratorial way, which I'll, I'll lay out quickly, is that there is sort of an element that's still being played into here. And I do think it's partly based on a kernel of truth, the sort of, you know, the elites in the deep state, uh, you know, versus the, the people kind of thing, narrative. There, there's that at play. And I think that there's an element to this that's to me really interesting. So like, let me just go to some of these, you know, indie journalists who are kind of acting like, you know, the fact checkers really got one over on them this time. This is when they lost, you know, mm -hmm. they can only call it a conspiracy theory for so long, et cetera, et cetera. Um, for example, Brett Weinstein said, people are awake after a lab leak. Most know we're being lied to, even if we can never be sure about what. The censors have overplayed their hand. We must fight them and win. It is human lives they now destroy and COVID. Um, that was in response to YouTube actually unfairly censoring one of his videos for, you know, talking about ivermectin treatment or however you pronounce yeah. it. Yeah, ivermectin. Um, so it's, it wasn't, he's not talking about, that wasn't why his video was censored because he was talking about lab leak. There's a kernel of truth to what he's saying. I mean, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of truth to what he's saying. It's not just a kernel of it, even if it sounds silly. It has that appearance. I mean, let's just, uh, you know, here's the, the, the Washington, D.C. version of it on the Hill. Rubio says, the Wuhan lab conducts experiments that turn natural animal viruses, which aren't transmissible in humans, into new ones that are. Fauci knew this and supports this controversial practice, which may be why he has always downplayed the lab leak theory. So that's kind of, you know, a less conspiratorial version than sort of what is actually more the mainstream right-wing version now. Cernovich said the lab leak theory became too big for the corporate media to ignore, and now they do a fake time for reflection act. There won't be any newfound humility. Michael Tracy says John Stewart's lab leak comments last night could have been a Steve Bannon rant on War Room a few months ago. You'd think these constant examples of decursive whiplash would compel people and media tech to comport themselves with a bit more humility. Again, just like Cernovich. But that never seems to happen. Um, I mean, what do you think about that? I, like, Because on some level, it does seem like the, a lot of the people I've just mentioned have sort of fallen for this kind of reductive media narrative about like fighting against the deep state. But there is some truth to what they're saying that this stuff has been censored and they've tried to purge it off the internet. So, yeah, I mean, I, I know maybe we've hammered down on this point a little bit too much, but what do you think about that? Do you think that that is part of maybe what's playing into this? Do you think reverse psychology, I guess, could be playing into sort of a psyop here? I guess one analogy I could compare, you know, make, and this is maybe will sound ridiculous, but it'd almost be like, if saying that Saddam had anthrax was like the alt media narrative that like Alex Jones was talking about and, you know, Bush was saying, no, he doesn't, he's, he's, he's not, you know, he doesn't have anthrax. 
And then all of a sudden, like three years later, it, Bush is like, yeah, he has anthrax. Like we, we had emails leak, um, you know, and then they had emails leak saying where they're discussing that he has anthrax. It'd almost be like that because that's sort of where this is leading to what now people like Jack Posobiec are saying is that he wants special ops. He actually says that he was the first one on record. Um, he's now taking credit for this. The first one on record to suggest bringing special ops in to raid the Wuhan lab. So right. this will this is all leading basically to weapons inspections type discussion, just like you and I knew that it was going to lead to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think one thing that's frustrating to me is that a lot of people writing about the media narrative or doing this kind of meta analysis of the media have not really looked into the story all that much. What they yeah. know is that, oh, it used to be that you couldn't say this. And now a bunch of people are turning around and saying, oh, well, maybe it's true. I mean, OK, you know, that that's certainly an important thing to recognize. I mean, it's very important. But, you know, without digging into the evidence and trying to figure out your own analysis, then you're left with basically two options. Right. So either it's completely zoonotic. It came from nature. It came from a bat. We don't quite know. You know, maybe there was an intermediary animal, something like that. Or it was a lab leak from Wuhan and they were doing gain-of-function research. And that's it. And I, I mean, I guess I'm preserving what we kind of talked about with the in the last episode, that there are alternatives to that. One is that this has been circulating for much longer than we know and that it didn't actually start in Wuhan. Um, one is that, you know, it's possible that, you know, uh, there was an intentional release. And I, I suppose there's even some possibility, which I wouldn't agree, that the Chinese released it. There's a possibility that the U.S. released it to frame China. I mean, these are possibilities. I don't want to say that they're, you know, necessarily the case, but I also feel like, you know, you bring those up to the very same people who are saying, who are doing this kind of frame about, uh, well, you used to not be able to say lab leak, and now you can't, you know, now you can, um, would kind of dismiss these ideas as being a little bit crazy or whatever. But, you know, nobody really, in the meantime, there's been nobody really looking at any of these other options, I guess is my main thing. And there still is nobody looking at them other than, I would say, Sam Husseini is maybe the one person I've seen who's who's kind of lent any thought or given any kind of uh, air to this kind of idea. Um, within the alt media sphere, and he has nowhere near the platform, unfortunately, that, uh, you know, the Glenn Greenwalds and Michael Tracy's and, and such have. Well, let's just examine that for a second, because, I mean, yeah, it is it is somewhat ludicrous to suggest that China would have deliberately released this in Wuhan right. or like anywhere near Wuhan, considering that that lab was there. So why would the Chinese government do that? So the idea that it's an accidental leak of some kind and that it's could you know something basically akin to a bioweapon that the Chinese government was trying to cover up for some reason mm -hmm. then that's that works better because the pieces fit more you know for the purposes of whatever that serves but then yeah, you know you widen it and then it becomes and involves all these American people right and then it does seem like there's a little bit of back and forth where people are trying to rewrite history you know the Trump side is still saying that you know, Trump ended the gain of function research and that Fauci, you know, restarted it. 
which you know you've just established is not true. It's it's actually that Trump's administration brought it back at a certain point. These things are not clear cut like this, but there I I do think there's other possibilities that we need to look at here besides yeah. that somebody you know that let's say one the one working theory is that the U.S. government was trying to frame China and that this was deliberately released in Wuhan somehow. Mm-hmm. If that's the case too, then I would even suggest that the Wuhan lab itself might even be a red herring. I mean, that might, I mean, like we don't even know. Mm-hmm. It's such a coincidence that it almost does seem designed in some ways to point directly to that. Do you know what I mean? That all the pieces are so obviously there yeah. that you don't have to search that hard to, to make these connections. So I guess that's what, you know, so then the accidental idea, could this be accidental? There's been precedence for that before, as we've talked about. Yeah, SARS SARS one uh, had lab leaks like six or seven times after the uh, pandemic, you know, from labs, which is just one example. Yeah, and I guess you know one other thing that crosses my mind, and this is going to sound really tinfoil hat conspiratorial. You know, let's just examine the twelve monkeys concept that someone who may have actually been someone akin to a terrorist might have wanted to just deliberately release this mm-hmm. and just see what happens. Um, who had access to something like this. Because that's essentially what they said Bruce Ivins was. You right. know, some kind of super patriot, lone nut, crazy guy who had access to anthrax who sent it out, even though that's not what I believe. That was the official story. Right. Why wouldn't that also be a possibility here? And also, all these other examples we have of bioweapons being made at U.S. labs like Fort Detrick and things like that, and, and these respiratory illnesses, these mysterious respiratory illnesses, the State Department report was trying to say that two months previous to the first reported case of COVID, there was a mysterious respiratory illness with COVID-like symptoms. But there's also been mysterious respiratory illnesses, as we talked about in the previous episode, you know, in other countries as well. So yeah. has any other possibility since we last spoke come into your mind where that you we did not last talk about like any anything new cross your mind at all or any just new tweaks to whatever your working theories were i mean i know you probably don't have a specific working theory but right you know has has anything changed and <laughs> into what you're thinking in yeah the past few months? well uh one person i will plug real quick is is a woman on twitter named laura henderson um she uh, i think her uh, handle is at six and lauren six and laura and she has done a lot on the could covid have been uh, sorry could um what what they called a valley the vape lung illness could that have been um covid before it was recognized as such and she has quite a bit of research that she's done and i i do find a lot of what she has put out there compelling I think her um, working kind of thesis or working possibility is that this was um, cryptic transmission. So in other words, it's been actually transmitting for a long time just without having been recognized. And then, um, you know, for whatever reason, there was kind of a spike up here and it became more virulent and and more dangerous. Um, I I don't know if I I buy the entire framework there, but I do think, and I know that we talked about this a little bit last time, that the vape lung illnesses, I mean, you know, you can look at some papers and they'll literally say things like, 
you know, it's it's extremely difficult to distinguish between a valley and COVID-19. And basically the way you do it is through maybe it shows up in a little bit different place in the lung a little bit more. And you ask, did the person vape? <laughs> so in other words, it's it's a um, diagnosis of, um, I forget what they call it, but uh, it, basically where the, the diagnosis for a valley is limited by, did you vape? And if you didn't vape, well, then of course it's not a valley. Um, but if you did, then it could be a valley in, in um, you know, even though it looks the same as COVID. So if that makes sense, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that basically if you're vaping, then you could have a valley. If you don't, then you couldn't. And so there, there's not a lot of cross-pollination of, of thinking about, you know, could these actually be the same thing? I mean, it's just a possibility. I know, I mean, there are definitely people who will say that that is, is dismissed, and, and, but I, I haven't really seen a strong, compelling argument that it could not be the same thing. And really quickly, there, there was also a very strange media perception about this when this first started. And I don't really know if it's just because we, I was in shock, you know, psychologically speaking, but it did seem like, you know, the media was, was uh, making it appear as if there was like instantaneous COVID deaths that somehow COVID could create, you know, make you be able to pass out and instantly seizure the uh, bunch of high up members of the Iranian uh, government died from COVID really quickly. All at the same time, it seemed, it seemed much more deadly in certain circumstances. And I just don't understand if, you know, is that because it's there were different mutations, different strains? What's, what was actually happening there? Yeah. There's definitely something I feel like we just still do not know about what actually happened. And, you know, maybe people will be like, oh, that's just early media reporting before we didn't understand this. But yeah, I mean, there were like something videos funny, you know? of people colla- supposedly collapsing on the street in Wuhan yeah. and stuff that came out really early on. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I tended to. I don't know really exactly what explains all of that. Um, And the more, (laughs) I mean, you know, the more conspiratorial explanations actually do make sense of it, whereas the less conspiratorial explanations do not. And I mean, you can look into, you know, or at least pull into the conversation, things like Event 201, Crimson Contagion, SPARS, you know, there are all these simulations that happened before. A lot of the simulations involved the same people who were involved in Dark Winter, which was the simulation right before the anthrax attacks, which eerily, you know, mirrored what happened in the anthrax attacks. I mean, that does look pretty strange. Um, and it 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 does make you wonder. Um, but it it is also hard to wrap your mind around the idea that it was, you know, this was all a kind of planned event. And um and I don't know. And as far as the Iranian officials dying i mean it does seem like covid would give a pretty good cover for basically just killing some people with well, yeah. some kind of secret uh, other bioweapon that you have that looks kind of like uh covid so i mean I, I do think that's certainly a possibility and especially when it comes to iran i would not in any way say that that is beyond something the u.s government would do um I think, you know, one one place that my mind has gone it is kind of around the media narrative, too. And, and there, there's a part of me that wonders, and maybe this is, is just because of how I've kind of, the way in which I've followed it. But, you know, was the lab origin 
uh, sorry, I mean, the natural origin zoonotic theory, was that always kind of an explanation that was meant to fail? (laughs) You know? Yeah. Because it it really, I always felt like it was not well supported that it was the only explanation. I'm not saying it's impossible or that it was ever impossible, but it never looked to me like they had really wrapped it up and solved it. And the longer it went on, the more it became clear that they hadn't because they couldn't identify an intermediate in, intermediate species and, um, you know, some other things kind of came out as well. So, you know, and now that that's kind of fallen away and we're kind of left with this lab leak story as being kind of the 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 one that's being that was kind of being built up uh on the edge and now you know the the natural origin theory is falling away and it's it's allowing that lab leak theory to rise i mean it does feel like you know there's kind of a a possibility that these were kind of always meant to sort of be exchanged out at some point it could just be meant almost like to buy time, you know, maybe, maybe because, uh, Trump was doing so poorly, it's almost like waiting for him to leave office or something. I mean, that, that, that implies that there is some kind of three steps ahead, kind of like chess moves being made. Yeah. Um, but it is, I mean, it is super weird. You can't write off the coinc as just a coincidence that all these like pandemic drills happened, especially right. the one. Um, the, um, it wasn't crimson contagion. It was the event 201 w- one where they actually talk about a coronavirus right. pandemic. Mm-hmm. And that one to me, I mean, it's just, you can't write that off. It, it is very, very odd. Yeah. You know, one other possibility that I guess has crossed my mind that I just want to mention quickly is that I think it's also possible that there are people sort of in the know who were maybe funding this, who were interested in doing something against China, who maybe be thinking that this could be a possibility that it could leak. And if it did, that it would be like good somehow if it did like almost like knowing the risks involved and sort of hoping that an accident would happen. That sounds a little bit wild, but I think that's also something to consider. If there is some kind of net benefit to having the whole world shut down, even if the, they want to make it seem like the whole concept of a great reset is silly and, you know, kooky talk. Well, I mean, I, I agree that at the very least there has been, a, a, you know, an attempt to seize on this to, you know, even, you know, and you could say this is a benign thing, but like you look at the vaccines, which are mRNA vaccines, which, you know, there had never been an approved mRNA vaccine at all before this. And now there are two and a big portion of the U.S. population, at the very least, has gotten them. Now, you know, it doesn't mean that the pandemic was started in order to roll out mRNA vaccines. But all I'm saying is that there is a way in which certain people certainly benefited from it. Everybody at Moderna, which had never had an approved vaccine before this this whole thing happened, you know, is sitting sitting very well. As a result yeah. of the pandemic. Now, that may just be coincidence. Somebody is going to benefit from any big event like this, no matter what. And and it, it it's kind of the same thing in the Great Reset mindset. It's like they were looking for opportunities and whether they created this opportunity or not. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't rule it out. I, 
I don't think there's any way to <laughs> to completely rule that out. Um, but certainly they were ready to seize on it and to try to, you know, push through certain kinds of things, certain kinds of reorientation of the economy and, um, you know, a, a certain kind of maybe different relationship to technology or science. I mean, those things are happening. Uh, what, how it will all shake out. I mean, I think we'll, we'll find out. Um, but it's, um, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where to go with it because it is, it is one of those things where, you know, if you let your mind get too big on it, you can get pretty, you know, galaxy brain, conspiracy brain pretty quickly. And there's no way to ever disprove one of those, like, you know, there's no way to disprove that the Illuminati is controlling every event that happens in the world, right? I mean, it's it's completely, un you can't disprove it, right? So if you yeah. allow yourself to get bigger and bigger and bigger with your conspiracy theories, you're <laughs> you're kind of allowing yourself to get to places where you're never going to be able to unprove or disprove your own thinking. You know, it's always a possibility. Um, so... And then, I guess that's why I tend to lean or not lean, but I tend to be like, you know, maybe it is zoonotic origin because a lot of other pandemics historically have been, you know, I mean, it's true. Although that, that is questioned how, you know, there are some where there is question about whether they were, they were really zoonotic, like, um, the 2014 Ebola, um, yeah. uh, epidemic, um, it was blamed on a bat, much like um, this one, even though, as I understand it from where the, and I haven't looked at this very recently, so I may get some details wrong here, but, you know, where the uh, pandemic actually broke out for the most part was nowhere near really the bat caves or, or something. It was like two different sides of the continent of, of Africa is my understanding, although someone can definitely fact check me on that. But one, one thing I would point out is that one of, like I mentioned, one of the very, very earliest people talking about COVID possibly coming from a lab was Francis Boyle, who was also one of the very first people uh, to point the finger at Fort Detrick for the anthrax attacks and, you know, wrote the implementing legislation for the bioweapons uh, convention for the United States. And he, uh, you know, has given interviews uh, or did at the time where he talked about um, Ebola being potentially the result of um, a vaccination program that was going on um, in Liberia, I think it was. Yes. And, you know, that may on its face sound a little bit crazy, but also he sounded crazy to a lot of people a year and a half ago, and now his theory is kind of becoming the dominant one for the origin of COVID. So maybe it is worth looking at Ebola, and certainly there are other, uh, you know, other incidents. Um, there's actually one of the co-authors of the Nature Medicine article that Christian Anderson was the main author on, a guy named, uh, or this guy may have actually been on the Lancet letter, which was a different, very early letter saying, basically, we stand with the scientists of, of China, and there was no way this could have come from a lab, and we think that's crazy. And uh, anyway, one of the authors on that was uh, Charles Kalisher, who was, to my mind, very credibly accused of unleashing a dengue fever epidemic in Cuba uh, that killed, I don't know, a, a couple dozen people, I believe. And there's uh, the Cuban government actually officially like 
pointed the finger at the United States and mentioned him by name. They even had this kind of lawsuit against the United States uh, for various crimes against Cuba, and they specifically mentioned his name in this dengue fever epidemic in that lawsuit. And um, there's some old um, covert action um, magazine article, or there's one article by uh, William Schapp, and he gets very deep into it and, and builds a lot of at least circumstantial evidence that this guy was involved in unleashing a dengue fever epidemic there. So, you know, that's another instance. And this is technically, it was in 81. So technically the U.S. had signed on to the Bioweapons Convention by that point. It would be obviously illegal to do this sort of thing under international law. Um, and, I, you know, I, I do think they are and have been, and we talked about on the last episode, some other instances, um, you know, developing this kind of um, biological warfare weapons and technology. I think they continue to, and I think the anthrax attacks were a precipitating event for them developing quite a lot more of them. 100%. I mean, d just where, what Dark Winter, the concept as shown in Operation Dark Winter led to, which was almost a completely rolled out mandatory smallpox vaccination program by the Bush administration mm -hmm. because of a completely imagined idea of terrorists somehow unleashing smallpox right. in the United States. That would almost happen. I mean, you could see all the press conferences that, that they were doing leading up to it, like trying to condition people to get ready for this completely unnecessary thing. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's weird. It's really weird shit. But I just wanted to bring it back to this idea that you know, we were talking about last time, even if ultimately is uh, just zoonotic origin, the focus on it being from China is just going to be politically awful for China in the long term. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be easy to always blame them in some regard to make them look like the bad, the bad guy here. Well, you and I were surprised by how since we last talked, you know, the mainstream dialogue started to pivot against some of the American involvement and U.S. government funding and the scientists' names started to appear altogether as some of these targets, even in some Fox News articles. So that surprised me because I thought, well, if it goes in that direction, then it's not going to be able to be about China. But I guess what I sort of led to in my own mind was that it ultimately doesn't matter that there were U.S. government-funded scientists doing gain-of-function research at the Wuhan lab because there has been a false narrative being blasted for the last year that somehow China controls the U.S. government, that the, the people in the Trump movement, the MAGA movement, and on the right think that the U.S. no longer has any, like, autonomy, that, like, nationalism is, like, being destroyed in, in lieu of globalism and that and we no longer have this powerful country anymore that China controls us. It, it's almost like that's an important part of the narrative that we haven't really discussed this whole time is how much that's played a role into this, that even if oh, the absolutely. roads lead to Fauci and a handful of U.S. government-funded scientists, they'll still be able to spin it as the Chicoms control these people, that this is the Chicoms and the globalists. Yes. This isn't like the patriots in America, like we're the patriots trying to fight against them. Like Trump was a patriot. It can be spun that way. And so I feel like their side, like Fauci's side, you know, that side that maybe wasn't going along with the right wing narrative on this is going to try to spin it differently. So maybe comment on 
how you think they're going to try to spin it away from sort of the U.S. government and AH funding and things like that, and how you know how it might play out moving forward in the Biden administration because they're they're not shying away from it. I mean, even Robbie Mook, you know, right when uh, Biden first got in, he was like, "Yeah, this WHO investigation is like problematic. Yeah, we don't we don't really trust it." I mean, that was a definitely a clear signal that they're going along with. You know, there's continuity there from the way Trump's administration was looking at this. So, right. Well, you know, I think there are people who who may, it, it, you know, as this builds up and they kind of um, array more more evidence or, or or whatever, or just keep reiterating the same evidence. Um, I, I do think there are maybe people from the U.S. or the West who may take the fall. I think Peter Dasik is almost certainly going to be a fall guy. Um, the head of the Eco Health Alliance, who received a ton of Department of Defense money and kind of funneled it to uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and also did work with all kinds of other organizations and was doing work in China unrelated to Wuhan. Uh, that that's probably worth investigating with a different lens. But I think he was so ham-handed in his response and is so seems so deeply kind of tied into it that it, if you know this is the push where it go and and Trump actually cut off funding the Eco Health Alliance for a while in 2020 before restarting it which was kind of an odd thing that happened there and kind of traces that that rise and fall of this narrative I guess um but anyway I think he's somebody who who is somebody who may take the fall um you know, it's a little hard to see Fauci going down. He's just got so much institutional power, but I guess it's, and, and I think some of, like we talked about, there is some hedging there, but yeah, I mean, I think basically. Well, it seemed like someone wanted to throw him under the bus. Well, sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, well, I, and, and he, that's possible, except I, I think Trump did. And there was a story that came out that Trump wanted to like publicly grill Fauci about the origin of the virus or something. Um, but he got talked out of it by some advisor or something, uh, which would have made for uh, great TV at the very, <laughs> at yeah, the very least. Yeah. Um, but but at any rate, I mean, I think um, I think there may be fall guys. You know, I mean, I wouldn't rule out Fauci being a fall guy. I wouldn't rule out Barrick being a fall guy. But they seem like they are positioning themselves a little bit different. Christian Anderson may be kind of a semi fall guy, at least in terms of somebody who pushed too hard on the the narrative in the wrong way but i i mean i think you're right that basically there is this idea and it's not purely confined to the right that the that china has seeped its tentacles into the united states and into the west and has has kind of like soiled or is is trying to you know overtly control us one of the first and i remember this this was a strange thing that one of the first things that uh, Anthony Blinken said when he uh, became Secretary of State is that he did this whole speech against China. I think he, um, you know, used the word genocide for Xinjiang, so that's obviously a big, you know, kind of not dog whistle, regular whistle to uh, that side of the narrative. But what he also said was that they were gonna, the State Department was gonna target Confucius Institutes. And Confucius Institutes are these like um, Chinese funded, um, I don't know what you call them, kind of auxiliaries to universities 
And they've been the subject of a lot of idea that this is how China gets its um, spies in the U.S. You know, they they have them teach at these Confucius Institutes, which are funded very well and put on nice cultural events, showing Chinese movies or having a Chinese food night or whatever. Uh, but they're they're secretly, you know, infecting our youth and also, um, uh, you know, controlling or, you know, the, uh, spying on on America. <laughs> and th- this was literally like in his first speech that he gave as secretary of state. That's so weird. Yeah. So, I mean, I do think, and, and, you know, there has been, there is a strange dynamic with China where from a geo strategic for the people that think in ter- in the world, in terms of like a big new Brzezinski type of way, you know, where it's all about geography and, and geopolitics, you would have to see that China is always going to be a quote unquote threat to the West. If if the U.S. wants to maintain dominance, China is a giant country with a ton of people in it that is, you know, very rapidly uh, building up industry and all this other stuff. And so uh, I, I think that's always been kind of, it's been backburnered for a lot of different other operations. You know, you had the war on terrorism. You had this little mini kind of cold war with Russia that happened from, I don't know, 2014 to about 2020 seemed to be kind of the tail end, not that it's completely over. And we seem to be entering a phase where China is now the, the kind of supreme villain for the United States. And um, there's a guy named Jeremy Page who writes for the Wall Street Journal. He's kind of interesting because he did this kind of stunt article where he tried to bike to the Mojang mine, which is where the pandemic, you know, in theories of lab origin, where the pandemic kind of story starts because these miners had gotten sick there. We talked about this in the last episode. And China supposedly cut off access and they detained him for some amount of time or whatever. Well, Jeremy Page, like 10 years ago, was like the main reporter and he got an award from some Chinese American Journalism Association for writing all these articles about uh, Bo Lai, basically bringing down this prominent Chinese politician, Bo Lai, who is affiliated more with the left kind of neo-Maoist um, and a little bit more of a firebrand or whatever. And he basically took him down. He accused he, he basically wrote all these articles saying that his wife had murdered this British diplomat and ended up being tried for that. And the the kind of upshot of all of that or the bottom line was that it, it helped Xi Jinping quite a bit because this was a major rival and, you know, this was something that helped him. And so last year, this guy, Jeremy Page, wrote this article uh, again for the Wall Street Journal saying based in the framing is and the reason why I'm doing this long lead up is because the framing is so perfect, I think, for a certain type of mindset about China, which is. We thought Xi was a globalist, but it turns out he's an authoritarian, right? And so what they're trying to say is basically like, we gave China a shot. You know, we wanted them to play ball. We tried to integrate them into the world economy, uh, but they're just too communist and too authoritarian. And now we need to turn the screws and, uh, you know, kind of kick them out of the country, kick all their spies out and, you know, get more active in combating Chinese aggression, you know, obviously bringing up Xinjiang, you know, quite a bit and building up the genocide idea that there's a genocide happening there. 
So, I mean, I, I think there has been a progression where there, there was a lot of coordination economically between China and the United States over the past 40 years or whatever it is. And I don't know that that will stop, but I do think there is a, an effort to sever the ties or at least for there to be a great deal more suspicion between the two countries and that COVID has beautifully played into us. I mean, you, you kind of, it would be hard to contrive a more perfect scenario uh, that would allow the U.S. to say, you know, really, we need to pull everything back. We need to detach because, look, we had we had trusted them so much that our military was funding their bio lab where they created the bioweapon that poisoned the entire world. Um, so it, it offers the perfect pretext for, you know, pulling back that cooperation and treating them as a. a you know, the big enemy that we have to uh, fight. Yeah. I mean, it couldn't be more perfect. Right. I mean, that's why, you know, I, I have to put on my tinfoil hat a lot of the time when talking about this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting too, because someone like Brett Weinstein, I would sort of credit him in part for helping to get this to, to continue to slowly build because he even got the attention of Bill Maher about three or four months ago. He, he him and his wife appeared as his guest to to push the lab leak theory on his show. I don't know if you remember that when they were on there. Yeah. But but Brett Weinstein actually sort of as an aside, he he said it's almost too perfect. Like he completely ruled out the idea that China would have done this on purpose. And then he said that it's also eerily uh, a convenient that it happened there and he thinks one possibility you can't rule out is that China might be being framed that someone wants to frame them so i found that interesting that even he uh, said that on his program i think exploring every angle of this is is wise to do because it's it, it just the implications of it are so fucking huge i mean i i mean just for myself like this was a a very traumatic experience uh going through this the last year it mm -hmm. was um it, it was it changed me probably not for the better like i i'm i'm still having like a hard time like reacclimating into regular life, even though I already got vaccinated, mm -hmm. you know, which is something I didn't even really want to do. I just sort of begrudgingly did out of convenience right. sake. Do you want to say if you got vaccinated or not? Yeah, I did. And I, I would say I share the same thought process with you that it, it was not, it was something I, I probably did more for convenience than for any real, um, you know, that it, I really felt like it was going to keep me safe or something. And you were able to see your family and stuff after you were able to Yeah. Vaccinated? And I, I mean, I had been, I had kind of expanded my pod or whatever to see my uh, family before then. So, you know, it, it wasn't so, I wasn't so cut off from everybody in my life as some people were. I mean, obviously I didn't see my friends really other than distanced outside things and that kind of thing. But it, it, it definitely was a, yeah, I mean, it, it was a obviously traumatizing experience for the world, uh, whether even if you believe that it was completely fake and, you know, we didn't need to do any of it, it would still be traumatic that all of this happened, you know? Yeah. I mean, even just the mere fact that anyone would be shaken by the fact that hospitals would not let you see like your dying mother. Yeah. Like if God forbid your mother or father 
you know, had a stroke or something happened to one of your siblings, you wouldn't be able to say goodbye to them in person. So that's that's like one of the craziest things, honestly, that would have had an effect on everybody, yeah. regardless of who you were. That that happened with my grandfather, where he was in a nursing home, oh, Jesus. and um, we uh, it was like there were seven weeks there um, between the shutdown and when he passed away that nobody was able to see him. And then we were able to have a funeral, but like, you know, we had to like take turns going into the, the room and stuff. So, I mean, it was a really unbelievable, pretty awful situation, especially not being able to, to see him for the last, you know, few weeks of his life. And yeah. And there's a million stories like that. And as well as the people who have, have uh, died from COVID and, and or anything else, uh, you know, that all, all of the different ways that this has affected people, it, it's pretty unreal, which is, and, and I think because it's so big and so kind of all encompassing and has touched, touched basically every person on the planet, certainly everybody in the United States. I mean, it, it that's what makes it harder to wrap your mind around, I think, the idea is that any that there was any kind of intentionality behind the origin of it, because you know who would want all of the you know it's hard to wrap your mind around the idea that somebody would want all of this stuff to happen uh, to everybody around the globe. But you know I, there are possibilities out there that that lead you in that direction. I guess is is, is what I think about it. Yeah, I mean it's like how scorched earth you know are these uh, technocratic elites willing to get i guess is the is the real question right because i mean if they're it's like you have to imagine that they they're not like they're not actual you know reptilians they have right you know children they have families that they care about so why would they you know want to subject themselves to it and it's also kind of implausible to think that even though what's his face that you mentioned earlier said that he already has a coronavirus vaccine yeah even though that may be the case uh, it's too hard for me to believe that there are people out there with like secret, you know, vaccines all, all ready to go. Elites hiding, you know, hiding, hoarding these vaccines. Yeah. I mean, it kind of happened with, it wasn't secret, I guess, but the anthrax attacks, you know, they were on, there were oh, yeah. tons of officials on Cipro and, you know, that was, they weren't handing out Cipro at the, the post office, you know, they were taking it basically in secret. You know, what's weird about that too, um, Gumby, is that, the more I learned about Cipro as I researched the anthrax attacks, the more I realized that it was actually probably one of the most, had the most side effects of any of the anthrax um, remedies that you could get. Did seem like somebody had a certain stockpile of it that oh. was like benefiting from the rush on the market of it. That's interesting. Because it, it, it's weird, actually. Cipro can cause permanent, it's called tendinitis, where if you stretch too hard, or if you flex a muscle too hard while you're on Cipro, you can like permanently damage it. Yeah. And there's several other on the market medications that have like almost no side effects that are just as effective. So, wow. you know, there's, there's all sort of weird dirtiness with that, but yeah, no, that's a definite example. I mean, that's to me, that's a far more egregious example that we can point to where we know uh, that that was artificially driven. And what's right. so creepy about that is it was leading to, you know, preparing us for a pandemic, the smallpox uh, terrorist attack fear. So, you know, and then now we have, we're in a real pandemic. It is triggering all sorts of impulses in, in my brain in that regard. It generates a lot of paranoia. 
I could see why people would want to vent, you know, their outrage uh, on a foreign country. It's a very easy thing to do. Americans have been doing it forever. But it, it does seem like there has really been this push for the past couple of years to make it appear that America has completely lost control of Hollywood, its own culture, mm-hmm. that you basically have to worship China and you basically have to spit on the flag. Like that's how it's perceived. You know, if you watch Fox News, that's kind of how they make it seem is that, you know, the people, these celebrities in Hollywood are spitting and shitting on the American flag and then like saluting the Chinese flag even though one of Steven Soderbergh's last movies is like all about like fallen gong, like organ harvesting and shit. It was like extremely generic, like anti-China stuff. Yeah, that was very weird. <laughs> then you have like it blows up where John Cena apologizes uh, to China, I guess, on video. I don't know exactly what he said. was also very weird, yeah, because he called I mean, Taiwan a country and then he apologized in Mandarin. Yeah, which, yeah. Is, which is crazy. It's weird. Yeah. And it really plays into that which I think is this rapidly growing false narrative that the U.S. is some kind of puppet of the globalist and China and that China controls our culture and that the U.S. is losing its autonomy. And then I think this just generally plays into this idea that the lab leak theory was suppressed because the U.S. establishment and the Biden admin is, quote, in bed with China, which is something that's even Glenn Greenwald has said recently. I mean, so... I guess just comment on that a little bit. Like, how do we even get out of this rhetorical trap that immediately just locks you into this, you know, losing argument? You lose automatically if you're trying to push back against it. If the framing starts as China controls Hollywood, like if that's how you perceive America right now in our culture, then if you're starting at that point, then you're already just automatically going to, you know, believe all these other things that are coming through that are anti-China, you know, have an anti-China spin to them in the Western media. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, one way of maybe at least pointing out some of the fallacy of it is that, you know, Glenn Greenwald, uh, as I recall, was uh, very against the Russiagate narrative, right? Which said that Trump was, you know, Putin's puppet and all that. That's true. And, And now the, you know, some of the same people who would be pushing back against the Russiagate narrative and that false narrative are kind of lending credence to the idea that Biden is Xi's puppet or China's puppet or, you know, in bed with China or the the U.S. is controlled by China. I mean, it's basically the same narrative just flipped around and targeted against uh, liberals, whereas the Russiagate stuff was targeted against conservatives. And there's, you know, no real legitimacy to either one. I mean, the U.S. plays a you know, an incredibly dominant position in the world militarily, um, you know, there's any number of ways of, of showing that just showing all the bases the United States has, you know, the number of aircraft carriers that the, the U S has in the South China sea. And, you know, there are nukes pointed at, it doesn't seem to work anymore though. It's like that, I, I, you know, I used to think that was just such an obvious play. It's like, look how many military bases we have versus China versus Iran. It just doesn't seem to, it's, it's like being dwarfed. Someone like Tim pool, for example, he acts like he's super plugged into that kind of stuff. Like he knows all that stuff, but then yet he's constantly railing against China's 
so threatening to in the South China Sea. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Where are you getting these talking points from? Yeah, I and I don't know, but it, it's <laughs> I don't know where to if if you're not if people aren't willing to recognize that reality of the U.S.'s military dominance, then I don't know what you could say to possibly argue against it. Um, yeah. I don't know that there is any argument. It, it, and it, it may come from places that don't really have to do with China or the U.S. or, you know, it may have, there may be other things driving that not wanting to recognize that reality. I don't know. But it's, you know, I don't know. I think this is kind of where we, where we ended, ended up last time as well. It's like there's not a good, it's hard to foresee a good outcome from any of this, you know, it, it, at the very kind of beginning of the pandemic, as I was reading a little bit more about gain of function research and, and, um, you know, really building up some, some knowledge that it does look like the U S you know, runs a lot of biolabs seems to have basically a global globe spanning bioweapons program. You know, there was a part of me that hoped that maybe at least there would be some movement toward banning, at the very least, banning gain-of-function research, banning the kind of research where you <laughs> take a virus and make it v- more virulent. But uh-huh. that's not, I mean, they don't, that's not really the narrative. The narrative right now is we shouldn't be paying China to do that. But yeah. not that, like, or we should investigate it to make sure that China can never do this again. Yeah, the thing is, from a realistic perspective it's actually in some ways better if china's do it from a purely like selfish point of view it's better for it to be happening in wuhan than to be happening next door to you right because yeah. if if these things can escape from a lab you know you you know frederick maryland would be the worst place in the world you'd want to be or or chapel hill north carolina or wherever else you know uh so and i don't know if that had anything to do with why the why the research was funded in other countries that maybe that was part of the mindset of like, well, that's almost like the least, that's the most like innocent, least conspiratorial explanation for maybe why the impetus to do it specifically in China. Right. Right. Cause if it gets out, then it'll just infect a bunch of Chinese people and you know, we don't. And because you could do it there, maybe you can get away with it there. Whereas here you wouldn't be able to the regulations. Yeah. Too too sketchy. And there is a lot of, thinking around that and it, it it is a little murky as to whether it seems actually like a lot of the research was kind of grandfathered in but it does also look like it may have, that may have played a factor that they started funding things in china because there was some heat on it in the united states but it's it the timeline doesn't quite match up because the u.s started doing a lot of work like this and funding work like this before that that paw that gain of function pause happened in China. So I'm not sure that that really explains fully why the U.S. was funding so much of this over there. Uh, but it, it could have played a role in, in why it happened, I guess. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's just there's just so many possibilities. I mean, if you want to get really evil and Machiavellian, it's, you know, it was some kind of long con by the U.S. to yeah. eventually figure out a way to to make China lose the upper hand right when China was becoming the most powerful, you know, economic player on the planet. Yeah. And there is a part of me that 
that believes that or lends some yeah. credence to that because one of the things that's interesting if you dig into the the kind of lab leak story it really starts like we talked about last time i don't want to reiterate the whole thing but in 2012 mojang mine some people are clearing out back guano or moving it around inside of an abandoned mine they get infected with a apparently with a coronavirus although it was disputed at the time and this is and then so wuhan institute of virology is called in they start collecting lots of samples and this is where the the origin of the samples that they then did uh you know use to make SARS-CoV-2 from right that's kind of the story but one of the interesting things about that is who was doing a lot of work in that area was USAID through the predict program and what i found yeah. is that the predict program really looks like it was maybe even a front for the pentagon because pentagon had a very darpa had a very similar program called preempt and um there was actually uh i think it was ron johnson or some republican senator uh had something on his website where he was talking about that he had heard that it was a lot of the same people basically that the predict program and the preempt program it was it was military people doing the work of the uh of this um preempt program and i maybe i didn't explain it well preempt the whole point of it was SARS had happened, you know, we're worried about viruses and, um, you know, coming from nature. And so we're going to collect samples of a lot of bat viruses and that. kind of thing. And so they were doing lots of collection in the area where this original Mojang thing happened. And it really looks like the most logical explanation is why were they clearing out all of this bat guano from an abandoned mine? Why did they care about that? Well, they were probably collecting Bacuano samples as part of this predict preempt program. So in other words, from the very, very, very starting point of this lab leak origin story, you have maybe, this is circumstantial, the U.S. government, you know, um, involved in that research. And, you know, is it <laughs> is is there a possibility, you know, that they, it was sort of like planted there or that it was they knew they would find something and then that this would create the basis for whatever they were going to, you know, fund the research on and on and on. I mean, again, let's say, yes, yeah. there's, it's, it's a possibility. Yeah. I, I mean, Maybe I would say so because, <laughs> you know, it, it, it just has a very strange tenor to the whole thing that, 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 that even by the lab leak story, the very origin point seems to have something to do with the Pentagon. I mean, that is pretty strange. <laughs> and it's like, come on, it's it's not our fault that we're thinking like this. I mean, it's actually less paranoid, really, when you look at all the things uh, you're laying out to, to suggest that maybe this was some kind of long con compared to the things that the U.S. government is coming out with now saying that, that U.S. diplomats are being targeted with actual microwave weapons. Right, right. And that UFOs uh, that like move around, um, you know, that don't follow the laws of physics right. are real. Yeah, um, that's that's what the military is telling us now. So, yeah. so why is this? How is this any crazier or conspiratorial? I mean, I don't know how to explain it, but it does seem like there's there's psychological warfare being waged on us in this, many different forms. Yeah, right and, now. And this has been one of my, I don't know, kind of background thoughts for a long time, which is that. 
really since the Epstein suicide, I guess, like it does feel like there has been a, you know, I, I don't know. It feels kind of coordinated in some way that like conspiracy culture has been kind of pulled out of the depths a little bit and it's been fed, you know, a lot. It's been given a lot of air at the same time that like it's also debunked from, you know, the fact checkers and APs of the world. It's being yeah. fed a lot and social media. It really is, you know, there is a lot of it out there and a lot more than there was five or six years ago. And, you know, part of me always, you know, social media, you always have to like try to keep a distance from what, you know, what, what it, it's trying to do to you. And it, I mean, it does kind of feel like there, and especially now it feels like it, it's being ballooned up in this weird way where the most, you know, the most like conspiracy, conspiracy things like UFOs, like you said, the Pentagon was basically feeding this idea and very heavily trying to put out this idea that it could be aliens. I mean, that was very much part of the story that was going on. The report, well, the report basically seemed to just via omission to yeah. make it seem like they didn't know what it was. So it had to be not human. Right. You know, right. it was like, exactly. So it's like, come on, guys. What are you trying and, to do here? Yeah, and and the really bizarre thing about the whatever they want to call it, Havana syndrome, or the you know the radio way, uh, the microwave weapons, is that it completely mirrors this you know long term conspiracy theory, quote unquote, about um, targeted individuals. You know that people are being like gang stalked. Yeah, which if you hear anybody saying, and believe me. And sadly, I mean, because Media Roots does dabble, you know, into some of this stuff, we've had people contact us over the years who are definitely exhibiting symptoms of schizophrenia, psychosis, who who believe, genuinely believe they're being electronically targeted. And now the government is saying that it's yep. probably one of the closest things in conspiracy lore that actually resembles genuine schizophrenia, right. like symptoms. Yes, exactly. And um, yeah, and 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 it's basically. The exact same thing. It's just that it's now the U.S. government officials, diplomats, are the targeted individuals. You know, the gang, the people who are being gang stalked. It, it, it's basically just taken that long running, you know, uh, conspiracy narrative, whatever you want to call it, and like flipping it on its head by making the U.S. the target of it, which was also kind of the deal with the UFO story where it was maybe aliens, but it also maybe was a Chinese weapon and we didn't really know, or a Russian weapon or something, you know, it, mm -hmm. it like making the U S into the victim. And that's kind of the narrative around COVID as well. That I, I mean, because as much as people like to like back away from the idea that it's a bioweapon, that idea is very much out there, especially in conservative media, that this was some kind of bioweapon. You know, maybe it wasn't intentionally released or maybe it was. And, um, you know, that the U.S. was somehow the target, of it, even though it's a global thing. Um, but it plays into the same kind of narrative, you know, where it's like a conspiracy type narrative, but the U.S. is the victim. of it. And that's a kind of strange thing that that I think is happening quite a lot lately is this this very weird mainstreaming of certain kinds of conspiracy narratives, but flipped on their head. 
I mean, what we've been talking about this whole time is one of the more interesting examples of how the media repeatedly call this a conspiracy theory over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And now it's finding like everyone's been vindicated. It's mainstream now. They're even going back and editing headlines. The Washington Post went back, as we said, went back and um, changed the headline to not Mm -hmm. call it a conspiracy theory. Uh, So, yeah, it, it is very, very odd. And I, you know... I, I tend to just go back to the classic concept of like controlled opposition. Mm-hmm. There is something about that's very powerful about conspiracy theories. Um, there's something that really sort of hits a, a certain part of the brain that's very enticing. Yeah. It's um, there's there's certain there's something about it uh, that has holds a lot of energy in our culture. I mean, even just UFOs has a lot of uh, holds a lot of energy in our culture. True. Um, so. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree with you. It is, it is a very strange thing to behold that that's that that's happening. I mean, even though QAnon is gone, I don't think that this is ever, you know, this is ever going to completely go away. And we can't forget that Trump rode into office on basically dog whistling to a lot of different conspiracy people. I mean, specifically like nine eleven truthers, which mm-hmm. you know, I, I think people really underestimate how much of an effect and an impact that had on him winning the election. Right, and Tulsi Gabbard kind of uh, head nodded to the conspiracy people too. With do you remember this where she was photographed holding JFK and the Unspeakable? No. Yeah. So it was like posted to her Instagram or something, and. Um, then she was asked about it, and she gave the most like banal response about it, which was like, "Yeah, I'm reading it, and it's very interesting. A lot of interesting information, or something." Um, but anyway, I mean, it it was very obviously a contrived, you know, event that she would be photographed holding that book. Yeah, I mean, it's and it's like. Look at what Tucker Carlson is doing. This is this is the new way yeah, I think yeah. to really reach people and go past their bullshit detector is you need to make it appear that you're against the elites. You're part of this populist force that's railing against the elites. And I think conspiracies are one of the more powerful ways to do that because it's like where it we're always the domain of you know, things that, that feel like powerful narratives to go against the elites you are usually in the realm of like conspiracies, right. um, even, you know, true or not, not true ones. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's just, there's just so much more to say about that, but it is really interesting how there is this on the rise, you know, I think it's getting worse, this more convincing narrative to people that China does have some kind of grasp over our culture and that they can even, you know, that they're repeatedly censoring us and that ultimately the the entire way the pandemic has been handled is because China, you know, that the world is following China's example. And this is the Chinese model and all this stuff. Yeah. It's it's taking everything away from what the United States is responsible for, for what like Western, um, you know, corporatism is responsible for. It's making it seem like globalism, this concept of like global capitalism is dominated by China, you know, rather than being this like system that a lot of countries have a huge stake in. I mean, you know, and I feel like they've played on people's fear to get that to come up into the narrative, but also there's like, there's things happening. They're just making it too easy for them too. like, no one's educating people 
who in the alt media right now is educating people on like what Taiwan, the situation with Taiwan actually is? Who is actually out there saying, look, the United States government doesn't recognize Taiwan as a country? Yeah. Yeah, it is fucking weird and crazy that John Cena would like debase himself and like remove all his dignity as a human being and speak Mandarin and apologize like that. But like, we don't recognize Taiwan as a country. The context is not explained, I guess what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I do think there's been quite a degradation of alt media, unfortunately. And there are good outlets out there. Um, but a lot of it has gotten in there. I, I think one issue I have is that there's not a lot of great investigative journalism, really. Yeah. There's a lot of commentary mm-hmm. and there's a lot of, um, you know, on Twitter, there's a lot of speculating and theorizing, but there's not a lot of great research or, you know, like I said, investigative journalism being done. And, you know, even the sites that do it, you know, they'll do one or two here and there, but then the site as a whole is kind of dominated by other things that, you know, are are really just more commentary. And even the commentary is not like, what you're saying, it's not that strongly um, grounded in in a kind of, I, I don't know, a, a anti-imperialist worldview or some kind of worldview that would be able to give the kind of context you're talking about. Like, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think of like uh, John Pilger did uh, the film, like The Coming War on China, and he did it like, I don't know, like 10 years ago or something. And there's not a lot of equivalents since then. There was a lot of kind of, you know, there's a lot of media analysis and that is important to do, but there's not, um, and that's kind of what we've been doing here, but there's not, uh, there's just not a lot that, that feels like it's really cutting in to the core, digging in deep. And I, I know I mentioned them already, but I, I, a lot of times when I'm doing some research stuff, I'll, I'll just search, um, covert action uh magazine site because they have all of the old issues of covert it had a few different names covert action information bulletin covert action quarterly and like every issue has incredibly well researched lengthy extremely in-depth pieces that are you know fact 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 totally fact-based and even the media analysis in there is very fact-oriented or you know using kind of like even like um, Edward S. Herman did this a lot, like quantitative data, you know, actually like counting up the number of articles or headlines on a certain point of view. And there's just like not a lot that's like that out there anymore. And not that covert action was ever the biggest thing in the world, but it was something that was out there that really had a very strong point of view and was extremely strong about um, attacking things and doing it in the most like deeply researched way. And, uh, I don't know that, that, that's one of my big disappointments is that, and I know it's hard to do. It's, it can be expensive and nobody pays for it. And, you know, it probably doesn't get clicks all that much either, but, um, it is what I, if I had my, you know, druthers, it's what I wish there was a lot more of out there. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's not something, I mean, I think even just what you do shows that you don't have to have a 
a big budget. You don't have to have like a team of people to to do to do interesting research that's useful. Well, I get my you know, CCP check, you know, once yeah. a week, but <laughs> that tides me over. But so, so I mean, like, I think people should follow your lead on that, even if you're just, even if you don't like want to do this as like a a profession or just like if you don't want to dedicate full time to doing like journalism or investigative journalism, like right. do what you're doing. I mean, check out Gumby's uh, Twitter feed at Gumby for Christ. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I think I would, I, my bar is even lower than that. Like I would, yeah, it would be amazing yeah. to see. I don't think I've even seen the, the journal you're talking about. I, my standards for what good investigative journalism is, you know, is probably lower than yours is. And I, I think I would probably be more content uh, th- with something where it felt like people were sort of carving out their own paths more and people yeah. were trying to find sort of their own beats so, or like or like niches within the larger scene of like anti-imperialism or actual adversarial like anti-establishment journalism. Instead, it does seem like there is sort of this rat race uh, economy that's now been created online because of YouTube and social media yeah. You know, the combination of the two where it's just like all hot takes, it's all jump piggybacking on the news stories, it's all piggybacking. I mean, even like Glenn, Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi, uh, it's not even like that their opinions I necessarily strongly disagree with in what they write. It's almost like it's just that all they do now is they just piggyback on other people's sort of media cycles, like the right media cycle. Yes. It's like, I remember when you guys used to dictate the dialogue sometimes, like you used to create original takes and i think i just don't see very much of that anymore yeah glenn greenwald i i mean i used to read him fairly frequently in the kind of late bush early obama era was i guess when i was most reading him and he did you know i this i don't think it was specific to him it was just the time blogging it wasn't so much of like what you're saying where you had to chase the narrative they would do that sometimes but then like you'd go on weird tangents like that was a little bit what the anthrax stories were that was a little off brand to some extent for greenwald or like i remember this is just a weird thing that came to me but like he had a big thing about max hardcore do you remember that guy it was like a i actually mentioned that in my uh i don't know if you listen to my podcast with susan uh, dr susan yeah yeah no i talked that's how i went back and found that randomly I mean, he also did that a little bit with Chelsea Manning. He kind of got the idea that Chelsea Manning was being tortured and that solitary confinement was torture to yeah. float based on, I guess, I don't know how much original legwork he did for that, but it seemed like that was another example of that. Yeah. I don't know. Um, and I mean, I think Greenwald, now I can see there's there's always been issues with him. And I mean, certainly <laughs> the, if you look back at his early posts, they are really, really bad. I mean- pretty oh yeah some of the stuff on he writes on communism and and yeah especially venezuela and hugo chavez is kind of shocking actually yeah it's it's pretty remarkable that he was able to rebrand so completely and now he seems to be rebranding again you know in this kind of i don't know what you call it non-aligned space that uh you know again this kind of going back to what we were talking about at the beginning the the Taibi is kind of falling into this now too, and Michael Tracy is very much in this realm of just, um, I don't know, orienting where they, they don't really want to, you know, they're kind of neither left nor right, but they're basically using 
right-wing narratives that kind of beat up on the left or liberals. And it's, I don't know, I don't exactly know why that has gotten so much purchase from them. I think it's partly because it's just the media, the mainstream media and sort of the, in the Trump era got so hyperbolic and so outrageously anti-Trump that it's almost like, it's almost like they're shooting fish in a barrel now. They don't have to actually do any of those reaches anymore and actually do original legwork because all they can, all they have to do now is just like react against how ridiculous, you know, a lot of these mainstream media takes are. And, and most of the time they're, they're largely right on what they're saying. It's just, you know, they're just reacting against it, you know, instead of actually pushing something that's, that's actually something unique or, or what, you know, what is their actual opinion on something that's not a hot take viral trending topic right now? It's been a while since I've heard something from any of them about anything else. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> and they don't, and uh, again, with the investigative, I mean, I know Greenwald likes to point to what he, the stuff he wrote in Brazil and, and all of that, but, and I, I know some people kind of question that or that he maybe took some of that work from some other people, but. Um, or that he had a kind of limited view on the whole thing. Uh, but you know, there's really just, I don't know, maybe somebody is doing it on Substack. Maybe, I don't know, whatever David Sirota is doing is, is doing some investigative work, but there's just, there's just not a lot of that. There's, and like you said, there's just not a lot of what feels like original or even fresh takes, you know, it's just, it, it does feel very, uh, I don't know. The media landscape right now feels pretty grim to me. And I'm just shocked that someone like them, you know, even though I agree that they were not, you know, they used to be, and especially Greenwald's old takes, some of them were really horrendous. Yeah. Um, and that he's has a bad track record, but it still surprises me that they play so much into that reductive narrative, you know, that sort of populism versus the elites narrative. Like, Matt Taibbi basically was admitting that he has common cause with like the sort of the QAnon, you know, people who just outright don't trust anything that comes through the mainstream media without really acknowledging the idea that that creates a perfect opportunity for the opposition to it to just carry its own version of propaganda. Mm -hmm. So it's like, and that's exactly what we see happening. And that's part of why I think things have gotten so watered down because it's like there is this trendy opposition to the so-called establishment that's its own sort of machine, you know, that's, that's being driven by all these different forces. And uh, I don't know, man, it's a, it's a wild, and it's not just because of Trump, it's for a lot of different reasons, but things are, are very different now. <laughs> yeah. What would you say to someone if they just, you know, came to you right now and, and agreed with almost everything you're saying, but they were like, well, of course, you know, China, they, they do things like more risky than the U.S. They, they do these unethical things in science. They treat their people horribly. They put Muslims in internment camps. So, yeah, like I'm not surprised that, that it's, it leaked from a lab there and that they additionally, because their government's so corrupt, they tried to cover it up. How would you deal with someone who's sort of coming at it from that point of view? Because I do think, I mean, obviously the, the right... You know, and even a lot of the people on the left, you know, especially like boomers are just mostly going to go there. The uh, Uyghur thing is a bipartisan issue, it seems. That's something that's sort of yeah, locked definitely. in on both sides. Yeah, that would be, I don't know. It's a little bit of a tough, um, 
perspective, you know, if, if somebody's looking at this honestly and that's where they come down on it, I mean, I guess I don't, you know, I would, all I would tell them is, you know, there are other possibilities, there are other explanations, and I would try to, to give them some level of evidence uh, for some of those alternate theories. I mean, one thing, we didn't get into this too much, but one thing I that did happen between the last time we talked and now is that I got some FOIA documents from the um, CDC because one of the alternative narratives that's been out there is that the um, is that Fort Detrick was shut down. Really, U.S. Amrid, which is the main lab at Fort Detrick, uh, was shut down in uh, summer of 2019. And after that, there was, uh, you know, people have pointed at news stories. There was some uh, respiratory illness at a nursing home in Virginia, not that far away. And um, I think there may have been one other incident. One thing I had noticed is that there were two kind of ma- major different articles. And one of them just had it. They had foiled the letter that was sent by the CDC to Fort Detrick. And it kind of laid out some kind of banal sounding violations, not banal, but not not hugely catchy. And then there was this other article from WJLA that talked about um non-human primates infected with a select agent. And so they, but they didn't have the FOIA documents. So I was able to FOIA the documents and I have them uh, posted up on archive.org. My a friend of mine, uh, Our Hidden History, who does great work, he, he posted it on his uh, archive, internet archive article. So um, I, I don't want to get too far into it because, you know, we're kind of late into this conversation. But I would just urge people to take a look at that and see if they can put any pieces together that they think either one has something to do with this or two, um, you know, what, it, you know, I think the big question you were talking about, somebody coming to me and saying China does this, this and this. Well, I mean, one response I would have is that the U.S. definitely, I don't know about China, but the U.S. definitely has a bioweapons program and Fort Detrick is at the heart of it. And something happened in 2019 where a non-human primate infected with a select agent, select agent's a euphemism for the worst pandemic potential type of viruses out there. Um, So this primate infected with this virus was, uh, they were doing a necropsy on it, so an autopsy on it, and there was a breach in in the lab while that was going on. And there are other violations relating to the cages where they keep all these animals that are infected with the um, select agents. Um, You know, I was able to get some FOIA documents. The select agent, and this is not unexpected, is blacked out. So I think, you know, if you're going to talk about China, that, you know, that's fine. You can go down those, those alleys. But at the very least, I would ask people to, you know, take a look at this incident and question at the very least what was the the agent that was being used here what were they testing it on and why does our you know if you're in the u.s your own government tell you that you you know basically not tell you this information about what you know what happened here that was so bad that it caused a lab to be shut down and I think if you go through the documents, you'll, you know, people can maybe piece together a little bit more of a narrative than, than I've been able to do. But um, that's one place I would go. I would kind of shift the conversation a little bit is, um, 
you know, maybe it has nothing to do with the, the pandemic at all. But I think if you're certainly if you're in the U.S. and you're inclined to talk about Chinese corruption and, and the possibility of of something leaking out of Wuhan, um, obviously, I would point to all the U.S. connections there. Then I would also say, you know, this is happening in the U.S. and there's no reason that if it happened at Wuhan, it couldn't happen here in the U.S. And something, you know, maybe kind of similar seems to have happened. At least there seems to have been a uh, quite significant um, breach of some kind. And we know basically nothing about it because we've been told almost nothing. Of course. And what we do know about is probably just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we've already, it already got into the press that like somehow like hundreds of live anthrax spores got sent all around the country. Right. Just these bizarre incidents that, you know, they repeatedly happen. But that's pretty amazing that you got a hold of those. You know, I want to encourage other people listening to try to do the same. Um, I've never even FOIA'd something. I should start actually getting into that. Gumby, is there anything you want to leave our listeners with that you didn't get a chance to mention? I think that was that was a lot of it. One little anecdote just to... I won't get deep into this either, but just to kind of show that that um, narratives around pandemics can be very easily managed by the media and by the establishment is um, the the Zika, so-called Zika outbreak that happened in Brazil in 2014. If you really look into some of the studies around that, there was um, a very small percentage of the microcephaly cases that everybody remembers, you know, the children that are born with smaller heads, only depending on the study, you find like 20 to 30% of those cases actually have Zika. And there is, and another thing that's interesting is that there were lots of infections of Zika in Colombia, right across the border from Northern Brazil, where they were infected with Zika, but very, very few microcephaly cases. And what, I think happened, and I think there's pretty good evidence for it, is that they had put a pesticide into the drinking water called puriproxifen that was supposed to kill off mosquitoes, which ironically was done because they wanted to stop the spread of malaria, I believe. It seems like it's almost certainly related to the microcephaly cases. And this was a massive story. People were afraid of, you know, Zika spreading all throughout the whole world of these microcephaly cases, you know, happening everywhere. And as far as I can tell, and people can look at this with fresh eyes, you know, the entire story is basically false. Zika was not the cause of it. There was probably a pesticide uh, made by a company uh, affiliated with Monsanto, at least at some part in its history, put this in the drinking water. And that looks like it was the cause of it. So, you know, it's, it's just one example, I guess, an example to leave people with of how these stories are not cut and dried. The, the truth may be out there if, you, if you're willing to look for it. And I'm, I'm not saying I absolutely 100% know for sure I have the truth here. But, um, you know, I do think we're dealing with an even more bigger, more politicized event that's happening uh, with COVID and the narrative is even is managed to, you know, a thousand degree more. Yeah. I guess let's just hope this doesn't 
actually escalate into some kind of real war situation, you know, whether it's a proxy war or whatever. It would be obscene if we actually got into some kind of hot war with China. But it does seem like there are forces that just really want to make the situation heat up to an extent that it's that it hasn't been in since I don't know when. This is something new because there is some truth to like the fact that there was a seemingly a detente between China and the United States Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. One hope I have is that more people will start just talking about this because I see very little people talking about it now. And that's partly what disturbs me. And even the people in the know, even the people who understand the danger that Russia, Russiagate posed don't seem to be that concerned about what's happening now with all this anti-China rhetoric flying around all this paranoia about China. And I just, I'm just baffled by that. I mean, I I don't, I don't understand how they can't see that. Yeah. Let's hope our parents out there who are watching uh, Fox news, (laughs) you know, when Devin Nunes comes on there and even though he's throwing out names like, uh, you know, eco health Alliance and NIH funding, he'll end his segment saying basically what he said on June 5th, the Chai comms, the Chinese are ultimately responsible for this. So even though there's American names involved in this, even though Fauci is the scapegoat now for this, it's I still think it's going to be used as a foreign policy tool against China, regardless of how it lands. I think absolutely. And I think a lot of the people who are promoting the the lab leak narrative are doing so you know, some of them may be doing so genuinely. I'm sure a lot of people are doing genuinely, uh, but they're kind of trying. And I, I think this is especially something that happens with the people who are come from a scientific background. They're like, well, this is just something you look at the science for. And there's a, a unwillingness to recognize that there's a political atmosphere around it that no matter what the truth of it is, um, it will be utilized for, you know, geopolitical ends um, almost inherently. And certainly there are, there is a geopolitical context that could help explain, um, you know, could help you solve the mystery if you were more cognizant of it. But as long as people have a kind of limited view on it, I think there's, there's only so many options that um, the, certainly the media will be willing to present. Same with the the media that, you know, appears to oppose it. Yeah, exactly. That's the new thing that we're dealing with. Even within the realm of libertarianism, I definitely see an interesting split where very few people are pushing back against it. And even some people in libertarianism are actually endorsing sort of the anti-China wave. So it's interesting to see that play out. And, you know, even to see Greenwald pushing some of that as well. Let's hope we can have some small amount of uh, impact on the situation, even if it's infinitesimally small. Sure. Let's let's hope, Gumby. But yeah, thanks for coming on Media Roots Radio again. We'll figure out something else to talk about next time you come on. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me. If you liked what you heard on today's episode of Media Roots Radio, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber for as little as $5 a month or per creation. This gives you access to an exclusive premium bonus episode per month. 
You can subscribe to Media Roots Radio at patreon.com slash Roots radio. So thank you again for listening. Take care of it.